I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch Blade, origin story to the Gillette Mach 3. I thought it was pronounced Blade? Blade. Yeah, I only watched it with subtitles, so I'm, I'm hearing it for the first time out loud. Blade is, uh, is Sade's brother. Yeah, he, he created my favorite jock jam. <laughs> Blade, uh, make you sweat. Make you sweat because he's chasing you with a big fucking sword. Bound to make anybody sweat. This guy, no matter what end he's chasing you with that sword, you're going to be scared because... One side of the sword has the big sword part, and then the other side of the sword, Peter, has three Same little more. swords. Say a lot. That is like Chekhov's sword handle. <laughs> <laughs> this movie, this movie, like they came up with a fucking cool ass sword, and they're like, "We need this to be very plot centric." I I love it because it's a little bit of James Bond DNA that no one would would have caught, right? Yeah. Like they're like, "There's there's a cute little uh, gadget we got in this movie, and you're gonna forget about it, and then an hour later, you're gonna go fuck yeah as a hand, vampire's hand explodes, <laughs> literally." just so that they can do the they can do the oh you missed idiot did I did I, did I? <laughs> uh, yeah what we love to watch we're a movie podcast we pick a theme we do movies over the course of that month around that theme usually but it's a supersized summer where we're doing a double month of what we call Mike Mignola and Guillermo del Toro go to Hollywood. This is this is very much a origin story to the modern Hollywood blockbuster, and it's how it's how Mike Mignola got involved in Hollywood. Um, it's how Guillermo del Toro got involved in Hollywood, but it's also how Marvel got uh, their teeth into the film industry because this movie is weirdly forgotten about and how important it is uh, yeah. towards the development of Marvel. Saying, "Hey, we could." We could probably make a bunch of money. Can we just here. make movies? Yeah. Yes. We're, yeah, we're it is. Uh, yeah, and this is like I said. We said this last week in the intro episode. This is a sprawling double month, right? Like this is this is a late era Terrence Malick movie. Like we're gonna start with Magnolia and and Del Toro, and by the end of it, we're gonna leave them behind and uh, talk about the husk of their creations that they left us with with where their franchises or their superhero franchises uh, went Hollywood-wise after, well, after one of them leaves. The other one stays around and insists, this is the best thing! Uh, I don't know why I'm throwing Nolan under the bus so much like he's a bad person, but he really likes that 2019 movie, and I don't know if I like it yet, Peter, because I'm going to watch it for the first time with my audience. Thank you very much. We Thank like you. to watch. Yeah. It's such dedication that we have to our, our craft that we're going to wait to watch a bad movie when potentially the a bad movie it. potentially a bad movie with our audience because we respect you too much to go behind your back and watch movies and then not talk to you about it yeah we're gonna we're gonna talk to you about it R-E-S-P-U-C-T. we're gonna cover the film we're gonna talk with you about it if you like to talk to yourself <laughs> we're gonna talk at you quite a lot if you'd like we can have a nice uh a uh, segment at the end of the Hellboy 2019 episode where we go, well, what do you think, audience? Huh. Oh, that's interesting. Thank you for sharing. Should we do, yeah, should we do a, like a choose your own adventure style 
um, We Love to Watch episode where, um, except we don't have the technology, obviously, to change our answers based on what the audience is, but we pause for their contribution to our discussion. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Just like Adora the Explorer, but for uh, <laughs> 80s gloop movies. It is true. I've heard people say that about our podcast. I've thought this about other people's podcasts, where sometimes they're saying something and you're like, man, I wish I could chime in here. <laughs> like, just oh, yeah. because you have something to say on topic or something to add that the, <laughs> that the host left out or got wrong, uh, in our case. Um, some people would, I think, maybe so they don't leave weird rambling reviews about how we don't know certain car brands. Um do we just gave them a chance to correct us <laughs> like uh uh in these like little little gaps that we leave we can start right now uh yeah peter yeah let's ask our audience well have you guys seen this one what did what'd you think of it oh uh, you're passing over all the slurs as a white man, I love to move on beyond horrible, offensive things that our audience is saying right now. Pretty gross, guys. <laughs> why don't you take it to the Joe Rogan podcast? That's why we don't talk to those people. I, yeah, terrible idea, Peter. What a bunch of garbage people are listening. Dora seems to have a great time. And we get to warn her about Swiper. Uh, yeah, so we're in our second week. Now, this is setting up where we're headed from here on out. We started last week, we discussed Mimic and Atlantis, uh, Del Toro and Magnola, respectively, their first Hollywood uh, movies that they worked on. They're going to come together next week when we talk about Blade 2. But, Peter, you can't have a Blade 2 without a Blade 1. What are you, the creators of uh, Leonard Part 6? <laughs> I would never presume. Yeah, but we're talking Blade, which doesn't have Del Toro Magnola's involvement. But is this kind of huge, important movie that you're right, Peter, for a variety of reasons, just, uh, you know, is eclipsed by so much that came after it? I don't think that Blade is something that has, like, passed away from the public consciousness by the fact that, hey, you know, based on the fact that Marvel's doing another one with Mahershala Ali as the star, which he lobbied for very hard. I don't think that's coming out to, like, 225, though, because it's not... 225 is what I call 2025, I guess. I like, I, I think of all years as like allowances for, for 10 year olds. Uh, yeah, 224, 225, somewhere in that range. Uh, Wait, hold but, on, hold on. If that's not coming out until 2025, yeah. he's going to be 51. How old Great. is Wesley Snipes? <laughs> hold on, hold on. Older? Wesley Snipes is 58, so he'll be 62. That's like. Not as well, I don't know big the, of a I don't gap as I think. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's more about star power necessarily than feeling like uh, they they necessarily need to recast. But yeah, it's not a part of Phase Marvel Phase Four, which they just announced, which means like it's going to be part of Phase Five, which with like Fantastic Four and I guess the new Blade, or it'll end up being a Disney Plus series or something. Who knows? But. Uh, so I like it has really left the conscious, uh, the public consciousness, I think. But it did, you know, due to a movie that we're going to talk about, and then a TV series, and then just not really fitting for a while into the new superhero type dynamic. Um, uh, it just kind of disappeared. But it was critically important. But weirdly, like, here's the thing: watching this movie, I I saw it when I was 15. I loved it. 
absolutely loved it. Like this was when I was in high school and made my like first top 50, top 100 movies of all time. This was easily probably in the 20s or 30s. I mean, on the first incarnation, as far as I know, it could have been in the teens. This movie ruled so goddamn hard. I was a huge fan. It was, and it was extremely successful. And it was, it wasn't just tapping into, I think, um, the idea of seeing like a superhero movie that was kind of a stealth superhero movie. Oh yeah. Uh, it was the idea of doing like all this awesome gore. The, the vampire villains were different than anything I'd ever seen in like vampire or monster movie villains. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, and but it was like it was gross and it was R rated. It's just like, but it also was really tapping into this idea of this like um, sterile technological nightmare city that like my imagery of like this this movie does really feel of a piece with the late nineties in like a nostalgic aesthetic perspective like i really like i connected with something that they were showing in that kind of like cyberpunk future like future internet like things are a little bit more modern like there's a point in the late 90s where you started to really feel like you were living in the future right like it really did feel like technology was weird and there was a distancing effect and uh it's amazing how much like of a piece this is with the matrix which came out the following year um and so yeah i just like this movie ruled so hard and then obviously you know the the aesthetic changed and uh, superhero movies went away and came back. And they didn't really come back to the R-rated versions that uh, until like Deadpool and Logan. So it, it's interesting where Blade will exist in the future. But this really did. I'm not surprised that this had a had a huge audience. It was a box office uh, success. It was a critical middling. Eh, okay, sure, action movie. It has like a you know a 50 percent on rotten tomatoes which feels incredibly low for something that felt this dynamic and new at a time and it is a genuine like uh uh cultural object like yeah it, it's a movie that doesn't get its due cred as like an influence uh, uh an influential movie but it definitely lives in people's consciousness you say blade people picture wesley snipes slashing vampires in half like people have a memory of this movie yeah i just think it's weird that like seeing this movie in 1998 felt like a fucking like nothing i had really seen before oh yeah like not like a jurassic park nothing i'd ever seen but truly something special and it's it's so funny that the critical reaction at the time was yeah interesting c plus like um and that um which keep Such in a- mind, this was after a, a string of Wesley Snipes movies that had mixed critical reception because this was like the 90s action era and like none of his movies were that well reviewed. Uh, they were all they all kind of had mixed reviews. He was considered, you know, sort of just like he's an action star or whatever. He 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 has limitations and. Uh, this was just considered like a escalation, like they've got a little bit more money to play with than normal. Um, and also he's fighting big monsters, like uh, maybe it's going to kick off a franchise, who knows? But that franchise can't touch Batman or Superman. It was always kind of this like side little box that they let them, the side little the playground that they let them play in. And so like the con for me, it's like Ebert gave it a three out of four, um, which is kind of interesting. Um, and, uh, I feel like that was generally the reaction where like, no, not a lot of the major critics were blown over for this, but also their expectations were set at like, this is an action movie. 
this movie fulfilled the needs of an action movie. <laughs> yeah, I I think that's I think that makes sense. I will also just say that why it's so surprising is that like 1998 and like the 90s, there are these movies that people remember, but like it is not a time of like these. Like, this should have felt refreshing in 1998 in the same way that critics the following year would find uh, The Matrix refreshing and, and that get a lot of critical accolades and stuff like that. Like, like 1998 is really this, like, bummer of a year and I remember it really well because I got to go see a lot in theaters. But, like, you're talking about, like, the big blockbusters, Peter. Like, these are the highest grossing movies of 1998. Number one, Armageddon. Number two, one of the only good ones in this group, Saving Private Ryan. But, like, not not the Blade type, like, we're going to do an action blockbuster. Uh, the r- Number three, Roland Emmerich remake of Godzilla. <laughs> like, then there's, there's something about Mary, there's Bugs Life. Then you have Deep Impact, number six. Uh, seven's Mulan. Eight is Dr. Doolittle. Like, nine is Shakespeare in Love. Ten is Lethal Weapon 4. Like, 1998, you have, like, the big, like um, – Stuff is like City of Angels, the Nick Cage stuff, Rob What Dreams May Come with like with Robin Williams as his big swing. Like you end up having like shit like US Marshals, which is like the delayed weird sequel also starring Wesley Knight. Slight uh snipes with this. Also I love that movie, by the way. But I, I get it's not saying. a bad movie. Yeah, it's not, it's not a bad movie. Uh, you have stuff like uh, the Avengers, like we you know, Oof. we talked about TV remakes uh, last month. That's like the the TV remakes of like the death nil and that. And then you have stuff like. <laughs> if me as an eight year old goes, uh, mom, this movie isn't very good. Can we take it back to blockbuster halfway through the movie? You know, you're doomed. Yeah. And then like even stuff like, you know, your big stars, like, like even like the big romantic comedy genre, which is huge at the time. Like you end up getting like a practical magic. And like I said, city of angels that are the big, like draws there, which are generally considered terrible movies. 1998 is a terrible year for movies. And the fact that this movie, which feels like nothing else, it feels outside of its air. It feels fast, insanely well-directed, has this like really cool vision of like this, this city being run by vampires. It's doing um, a, a, a fucking kick-ass superhero movie after the death knell of superhero movies the year before with Batman and Robin. Critics definitely give it, a, in general, I think, a shrug at best. Like, this isn't terrible. This isn't good. But I'm where I'm going with this is I'm not surprised that audiences were like, holy fucking shit, this rules. Yeah, <laughs> like, it, it made it made a 50 53% uh, domestic gross and then worldwide. So, it was like a $30 million movie they made $70 million. Um, and then worldwide, it made $130 million. Yeah. And also, marketing budgets were not what they used, no. used to be. Um, so, like, this movie was a hit hit. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like, this is not... I mean, it made, it made f- what, four times its budget is a hit hit, right? I know now movies need to make, like, $400 million to be considered a hit. But, like, $130 million is, like, a hit hit in the late 90s. Especially for a superhero movie and especially for... Um, starring a black lead, which uh, studio execs had asked if they could replace Blade with a white guy. Yes. Yeah. This is in an era where Marvel had produced two movies, basically. Um, one is an actual movie, which is Howard the Duck. It was a notorious bomb uh, and like launched countless uh, legal crusades. And like it, 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 the movie was a big fucking deal because like it was like. Can comic book writers and comic book creators get money for the movies that get made? 
Like that, Howard the Duck is weird, but like it helped set legal precedent precedents for how creators are credited for these movies. Um, this movie also got sued by one of its creators uh, yep. to try and get um, credit. It, it, it's good to put it in the context that it was Howard the Duck, and then do you know the other one, Aaron? Because this is funny. Well, so there's a few. Yes. Like, yeah. So you're, there's the cap. There's the straight to video Captain America movie. Yes. There's which is basically the, not a real movie. Also, no, not a real movie. There's the Dolph Lundgren Punisher movie. Yes. And then there's the fant- the famous Roger Corman Fantastic Four movie. There we go. That's the one I wanted you to hit because well, that one didn't get released. The other two got released. Yes. Yes. But I, what, what I wanted to note there is that. <laughs> There were, like, TV shows and such for the Marvel Universe. If one of your movies, one of your, like, four releases, quote-unquote, is basically just let's spend the least amount of money we can. It still qualifies as a movie, but this is just to hold on to the the, the rights as a movie. Something is awry with your film film ambition. Yeah. Like, think about where Marvel was in 1998 if Blade was the big... (laughs) Was the highest grossing Marvel I movie until Spider-Man, hope, right? But like, the big black hope. Like, if yeah. Wesley Snipes is, like, yeah. leading you into the future and the movie makes $70 million, $130 million, and people, New Line, Marvel, everybody is fucking pumped about this thing. Yeah. So, one thing that's um, – there's a, there's a couple of books that I read last year. Uh, called Marvel the Inside Story and another one called Slugfest about the history of Marvel versus DC. Uh, uh, because I am a nerd in all capacities, as I started getting into comics, I also wanted to get into the history of comics. So I read I two books. It, yeah, I read it, two it, books. Film context is always, it's part of yeah. the reason we have the show. Like context always makes art more interesting. Like yeah. a picture of a field is not that interesting in a museum. And then you read the little card and you're like, well, pastoral scenes were not – like all of a sudden the piece of art makes sense. Yeah, right? yeah. Uh, so I actually like – Stan Lee spent most of the 70s and 80s and 90s trying to figure out why no one – would make Marvel movies like he tried so hard his entire life was spent in Hollywood like he removed himself from the comics this was like a big uh, thing that like happened about how Stanley still took credit of stuff while really just kind of being you know someone to go on talk shows and um, and but he spent most most of his time was trying to get Marvel characters in movies or like TV shows, which he was successful at, and movies that he was very unsuccessful at for for a very, very long time. And so, like, it is just insane to think, like, where we're at with comic book movies and, and properties and stuff now that, like, no one could even figure out how to make a fucking Spider-Man or a Hulk or, you know, a real Captain America movie. They somehow got Punisher over the line with Dolph Lundgren, but they're like, ah, take out the skull. Let's just make him, like, a guy who kills people. Like a Dolph like a Dolph Lundgren thing. And this one too, like it is important to note, this movie does come after like one of the first like deaths of superhero movies, right? Like Batman and Robin was kind of considered like, there goes that trend in Hollywood. Marvel never really got a shot. Like it is, it is funny to look back that like Batman's this huge success and they are like, we need comic book movies, right? But what they decide is that, like, they don't actually need necessarily DC or Marvel-like type hero characters. They're like, okay, Batman, right? 30s pulp icon. 
All right, we need a Phantom movie. We need a Dick Tracy movie. <laughs> we need a we need a fucking what was the one that Al? Well, the Shadow movie. <laughs> like they really they went in a weird direction with their comic book movies, um, to mostly terrible results. Uh, but uh, it it like that they it's so crazy that like batman kicked off like the first wave after like of like let's make fucking comic book movies and no one thought to like include a marvel character really yeah and 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 it's it's just important to note here like i i just want to reiterate something i said like a minute ago i fucking love that for a period of time wesley snipes was like the great hope of of uh, Marvel yeah. making money in, in film. Like I love that ever, that people are looking to Wesley Snipes. And there's actually a very interesting story here. Ernest Dickerson, apparently, um, black filmmaker, um, has made some really great movies, some very bad movies that are gorgeous to look at, and is a DP on some of the best movies ever. Um, he brought in a script with David Goyer. Um, he wanted to direct David Goyer doing the script. Goyer wanted to direct this movie, as I understand it. And the second one. Ernest Dickerson wanted to direct. Ernest Dickerson either got pulled into something else or just lost interest. It's kind of hard to tell. Then Goyer was like, well, I'm like the creative head right now. I want to direct, which you yeah. get to do later. And they were like, no, no, no. We need to bring in someone else. Uh, and they did the 90s thing where they brought in basically like a visual stylist or like a, a, he's not a music video director, but it's essentially the equivalent of a music dr- video director. Like they liked the look of one of his horror movies. So they gave him a big $30 million movie. <laughs> and then Snipes, yeah. this this is so interesting. Did you read? Did you read about how Wesley Snipes was going to be Black Panther? Yes, that uh, this started with them trying to make a Black Panther yeah. movie, and, and the director clicked. Michael DeLuca was talking about how he's like, "Oh, well, Snipes was kind of getting frustrated with not being able to make a Black Panther movie," and like Wesley Snipes was like a somewhat significant star at this point. Like he was making he was making yeah. big big movies, and like. He was like, I don't want my star to wane. I want to keep making movies. Um, And he was in Development Hell on Black Panther, which, mind you, action stars and actors aren't necessarily the same thing always. Wesley Snipes is both of those. Wesley Snipes trains like a fucking monster for these movies to get cut so he can be shirtless in them. On the flip side... Wesley Snipes is a character act. Like, he gives a shit about character motivations. Yeah. Watch him in any interview from the period. It's amazing. He only talks about... He either talks about... He talks from Blade's perspective. Like, he's like, I gotta yeah. I gotta kill that Deacon Frost. And it's kind of cringy, but it's adorable. Um, or he talks yeah. about th- in third person with, like, a passion. And I love, love that, like, Wesley Snipes was, like, throwing himself into Black Panther. Like, that movie might have been garbage. This movie almost was garbage, which I'll talk about a few choices they made, which were very smart. Um, Black Panther yeah. might have been garbage, just like the pre- uh, the, all the previous Marvel movies, basically. Um, but he ended up making Blade, and he found... Somehow he found a perfect, um, perfect collaborators in a few martial artists, uh, as well as yep. the director, Stephen Norrington, who was brought on to replace Dickerson, David S. Goyer, kind of all these names that were, were um, getting tossed around a little bit. And it's just fascinating to me that like Wesley Snipes was in this position where he was like, <laughs> he was in this position where he was like, all right. I'll do a comic book movie. I'll make comic books real. But, like, we have to make them actual action movies. Because Wesley Snipes famously 
is an actual martial artist and moves so fast that in certain movies, his early movies, they had to like adapt his fighting style so the camera could actually pick up the frames and it wouldn't just look like a blur. It's sort of like how people run slower on film so that the camera picks it up. And the camera actually, because of 24 frames per second, it makes them look a little faster. He had to do that with his fighting because he was so fucking fast at all the moves. He is. He's so good in this. And also, I remember at the time it was really kind of seen as like, oh, like, so Wesley Snipes obviously has a lot more range than, like, the Stallones and the um, Schwarzeneggers. But he was kind of lumped in with that, like, 90s action star, like, that had graduated from the 80s and was, like, that new wave. So, you have, like, movies that, like, fucking rule, like, Demolition Man, where you have, like, him playing the the the, the villain to, you know, the old man, uh, old cop who's way past his prime and, like, Sylvester Stallone and stuff like that. And I remember at the time, him doing this Blade movie really felt like, oh, he has figured out a way to... Basically, not like the curse, but like get out from underneath these movies that they're not making anymore or they're making to limited uh, success. Like the, the stuff that the Seagulls and the Van Dams and even the, you know, like it's the year after that, this Schwarzenegger is doing End of Days and Stallone's like, I don't even think Stallone's in anything. <laughs> like, St- I remember uh, Faded faded weirdly quickly in the 90s and he like i remember like yeah get car he does the get Get carter Carter, tango and cash a lot of his late 90s movies are are considered comebacks but he just keeps doing movies that are considered comebacks because his his star was considered to be he was considered to be an 80s star and even rambo those movies were considered cash-ins on the original rambo which was like a fairly well-respected drama (laughs) yeah yeah, they're very different movies. Yes. Yeah, but so he's like, oh, he's doing this. But then Snipes really doesn't go on to anything besides the Blade movies. I remember kind of Art of War, which came out, I think, in 2000, getting like some – I remember like being hyped for it and then everyone was kind of like, this is this is terrible. But like – but it did feel like this was, this was cool. Like he's doing – he's this person who's like star feels on the wane and then he does this fucking – awesome movie that like 15 year olds like myself are like this is the best this is the best uh shit ever um i also want to talk about he looks so good in this movie there's a lot of shirtless shots in this and he's just like cut and powerful and he's funny and he can move he has so much movement that's the thing that's killing me he is so he is so compare him to to fucking to the batman movies like and how stiff and awful they were compared to this like he can fucking move and all that stuff is still great like it's hard not to watch this and realize it came out a year before matrix and not go did they watch this and was it something like obviously i know I i don't think like it was stolen or something like this but like it is crazy how there was something in the like in the ether about uh uh, uh, like, okay, martial arts, cyberpunk future, let's cross those things together because we I, we kind of alluded to this, like, this was not sold as a Marvel movie. This was sold as a Wesley Snipe action. <laughs> they, they didn't have, like, like that Marvel stuff. TV or that Marvel movies no. brand until the Spider-Man movies. Yeah, and also, like, most people hadn't heard of Blade. I, we'll get into that, actually, like, right <laughs> With good after this. Um, yeah, uh, and, uh, and and so it was kind of sold as that, and I remember watching it, and then some like it was one of those things where like a friend said, you know, that's based on a comic book character, and I was like, oh, I've never even heard heard of him, and that was a pretty calm response. Like they're they're. The trailers pared it down quite a bit too. It was like, look how fucking cool Wesley Snipes is, uh, and again, understandably so because 
comic book movies were not like saying it's a comic book movie was not a way to sell um, a movie at the time, especially not a very like hard R gory ass like action movie. Um, and also, it's a character that like even even uh, even if if it was a way to sell it, that you're not you know you're not going to get that much traction just by saying Blade. So let's talk about that because that is important. So. I I never read. I mean, I hadn't read many comics until the last couple of years. But I so I definitely never read a Blade comic. I would have thought I had so much doing research for this and reading some Blade comics, or at least Blade comics prior to this movie. I haven't. I'm going to dip my toe a little bit into Blade comics after this movie before we record Blade Two. But I had so many preconceptions shattered as I started reading them and also as i did some research in this so let's just set it up really quick so blade starts with this character in this like post like loosening of the comic book restriction codes in the 70s where they start bringing back like ec era horror comics that were banned by the comics code uh, post the 50s right so they're, they're, they're still governed by the comics code but it's the 70s and they're getting away with more and more. So horror comics were one of the main things that were banned that just didn't exist in the 60s and early 70s. Marvel starts bringing them back. Um, and so they do this Tomb of Dracula series. <clears throat> and in the 10th issue of that, they introduce a character uh, very inspired by uh, black exploitation movies called Blade, who uh, just is kind of a just, again, there's, there's not much characterization in the first few comics. I read... I think his first four or five appearances, which are a combination of this this other horror side imprint that like told his origin story, and then a couple of his appearances in Tomb of Dracula. Um, can, we, can I and interject it, really quickly? Jump in. Do you know yeah. what the name of the original writer was for the Dracula comics? I mean, I hope it was Jefferson Twilight. This is pretty perfect. His name is Marv Wolfman. <laughs> oh, yeah, I did know that. <laughs> Why is he writing Dracula comics? Sorry, go on. He should be writing mummy comics. That'd be funny if he tried to get work as as a as a, a Wolfman, um, you know, like a comic artist, like Tales of Wolfman, and then the the, the suits were just like, this a prank? Marv Wolfman? <laughs> Do you think it's Wolfman or he like pronounced it? Wolfman? He's. I, I, it's hard to tell, but like I imagine, you know, a, a comic book writer in England. It's going to go Wolfman. <laughs> Probably. Um, Marvin Wolfman. Peter, I know you – we talked about this. I know you read a few of these too. Um, I didn't I didn't get too far into it. It's – you know, it, it felt really early. It's like it is such a thing that, you know, Marvel and DC did in the 70s from reading those books as well where it's like jumping on trends. So, it's like, you know, he's got a – He's got a big afro. He he speaks in jive. He says like harder stuff like these stuff like these vampires all stink. Yes, um, you know, really hard edge uh, language for that time. If you've watched Venture Brothers and you've seen the character of Jefferson Twilight, as I just alluded to, um, that is what he looked like in in the in the comics in the seventies. So I didn't get much of a grip. I was interested that like in his second appearance in this other uh, horror imprint, um, that they did the thing they did the origin story of him um him being a uh in his mother's womb when he was bitten by a vampire, blah blah blah. So then I, I fast forwarded to the 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 nineties stuff. So I, first I was just amazed. There's essentially like I don't know, like a hundred 
a hundred issues in all of uh, Marvel Comics or 120 issues that feature Blade. I expected like a longer running series, something. That doesn't occur until 1994. He guest stars later on. They bring him back in some 90s stuff, like with Doctor Strange and a couple things like that. And then in ninety in the 90s, they give him an, uh, a run that only the the first issue is available on Marvel Unlimited. So that's the only one I read. The last seems like 18 issues that introduces stuff like Deacon Frost and stuff like that. I read that first issue. It's terrible. It, it's like the it does the whole. The first half of this, the the book is him going, thinking that, you know, it's like a reboot for his own series where apparently he has killed Dracula somewhere when they ended the Tomb of Dracula books. And he's like, I guess I don't have to fight. He's trying to live a normal life. And then vampires show up and he's like, I guess I'm back in it, um, which I guess is to set up the new book in the new city he's in. Um, and then there's not that much on Marvel Unlimited from that run, so I didn't really see where it goes. I did look at some images online and see that, like, Deacon Frost apparently shows up. And I'm like, oh, this must be where they, like, there's not, the next Blade series is, like, post-1998 after this movie. So I'm like, okay, so whatever this 1994 run of 18 issues is, that must be what inspired most of the stuff in this movie. Because obviously it wasn't the the Jefferson Twilight uh, Tomb of Dracula era. And holy shit, Peter, as we found out, 100%. (laughs) So in the comics, he is not a daywalker. There's no whistler. I mean, he can walk during the day, but it would be lowercase daywalker in the sense that all of us are daywalkers. (laughs) Yeah. He has no superpowers. He's like a detective. He's got like his whole thing is he's super smart. And his thing is, is that he he was in the womb when Deacon Frost killed his mom. But that made him a hate vampires, which there you go. That's his motivation for hunting vampires. And two, he's immune to becoming a vampire himself. So I guess they could shoot him in the fucking head because he's just a dude. But they can't turn him into a vampire, which is where the dynamic is. Everything else, the superpowers, the fucking cool-ass gadgets, the the idea of a whistler Yeah, person, most importantly, whistler. That's all Goya. Yeah, he doesn't have a Chris Christopherson. He just has... No. He has a... Uh, I, I think it's like a Van Helsing or no, it's like Jonathan Harker's descendant or something that just like yeah, comes and yeah. whines at him sometimes. <laughs> it's It's actually insane how much Goyer basically was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to do my own thing. And what's interesting about this, and, and I'm going to read some before we do Blade 2. So the next Blade series that basically they – now they have all of them after like this point on Marvel Unlimited, which again is still only another like 60 comics or 70 comics. Then all of a sudden it's like uh, Blade gets all these these powers. Like they basically turn Blade in the comics to Blade from the movie, and the way that they retcon it. Well, they don't even retcon it. They just Morbius, the living vampire, I guess, bites them and gives them these Daywalker powers. Like that bite plus his origins makes him be able to do movie Blade shit. So I love when they the comics after like, we need to get to the number three, and they're like, 
Well, in the movie, it's just three plus zero. But in the comics, it needs to be one plus 1.4 plus another. (laughs) Again, it's that commitment to like, well, we can't just reboot him in a continuity that's consistent. So we need to turn him into movie blade somehow. Oh, that's right. We have this other character who's a vampire, but he's kind of a superpowered vampire. Let's have him bite him. But it, it is crazy. So then after this, Blade in the comics becomes Blade from the movie. That is so different. Like, part of the reason, Peter, you and I were reading at first just a lot of Hellboy and then all the Hellboy, which we'll talk about in future episodes, was because we really wanted to uh, get more familiar with kind of what inspired, like, Del Toro and even later on, Jordan, to make these movies and what they were pulling from. That's why we started reading the Blade stuff, too, only to find out that basically uh, the Blade movie influence Blade the character almost, you know, at I don't know what percentage you want to give to the fact that it was a guy who fought vampires. Yeah. But beyond that, everything else is taken. Yeah, you're na- you're nailing it. So the 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 deal here is that I I watched the Hellboy movies because I was a Del Toro fan, and I watched Blade Two because I was a Del Toro fan, um, and also I liked Blade One. Um, we'll get to that. <laughs> um, and then I went backwards and I said. I'm going to watch or I'm going to read the Hellboy comics because I love these movies so much. And like, you know, I like comics, but I don't really like superhero comics that much. Let's see. Let's see what this Mike Mignola guy is up to. So I bought one of the, the, the first comics and I was like, oh, this is like barely a superhero comic. It's way more just about like gothic, weird ghost stories and shit. And then eventually it becomes a Lovecraftian horror story. And we'll get into all of that. Uh, oh, this is very much my shit. And then we got obsessive about it. And we'll talk about that throughout the next uh, month and a half. Um, <laughs> with this, I was like, I always felt bad that I never went back to the Blade comics. And some of that is just being intimidated. I knew he was at sometimes an Avenger. Sometimes he hung, he hangs out with other comics, and I was just intimidated by the concept of uh, reading old, uh, reading old Marvel comics. That like, oh well, I gotta jump in here. What's the good? What's the good in, in jumping in point? Also, this could get expensive. What if I buy a bad one? Whereas like Hellboy was like very clean cut. Where to jump in? And it is so funny to me that like I think my like apprehension when I was like. 13 to now was probably well-founded like the com- my apprehension from like 13 to 20 to 30 was probably well-founded because um i didn't really enjoy any of the blade comics up to leading the movie and now that and and i read one of the comics that is after how many did you read? I just read like the first four and then I read the one that they had from what I thought was the modern. I read one of the Doctor Strange series that involves okay. uh, it, it involves uh, Doctor Strange wagering for the souls of all humanity against his own. Okay. Like, so that's that's pre the, his own series. That is that is in the that is um that is in the 2000s. Okay, so I haven't touched those yet. I did. I'm gonna. I'm gonna hit. I read one of those, and I was like, "Oh wow, Blade is so much more interesting after the movies happened." <laughs> so it's kind of funny. Yeah, like, well, I don't. Yeah, I, I like retroactively. Did jo- you read that one 1994 issue where he's like, "I guess I gotta go be a person because I killed Dracula," and at the end they're like, "Wait, Dracula's back?" Yeah. Time to time to get the, like what a terrible the, issue. The art is kind of interesting like. in that era. Like I think it's kind yeah. of cool looking. It's art, but that's art where I was reading this and I was like, oh, this art's kind of cool. It also reminds me of the art in <clears throat> Hellraiser, which the Hellraiser comics are awesome. 
the Constantine comics are so, so cool. Um, and I was like, oh, you're just reminding me of how good Constantine is and how bad this is. <laughs> like, I mean, there's a lot of good 90s, like, uh, comic, even like on the Marvel absolutely, side. Absolutely, like, absolutely. Whatever this series was, I mean, keep in mind, this, this is the... This this has one of two things that could happen with it, right? Like this is a character who's just been around for a while, and they give a short run to do a little a little story, which either ends up like end up, ends up becoming like fucking Alan Moore, like I guess I'll do this thing no one cares about, Swamp Thing, right? Or it becomes something that has that disappears and goes away because it's all your worst artists and your worst writers. And I don't know if that's what happened in Blade. I don't know who wrote it. I don't know who who drew it. But at the very least, the first issue is like, this is terrible. <laughs> this is not good. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, wasn't into it. Uh, wasn't into it at all. But um, I am excited between this episode and Blade 2. I'm going to start reading some of the the other Blade comics and kind of see like, it's just interesting because it feels like, you know, usually when you see these comic book movies, you go... Uh, before the Marvel era, you'd go, you know, like Batman Returns is is a fantastic movie, but like they kind of are just like bending Bat the character of Batman to Tim Burton's aesthetic, or like you see some of these bad comic like comic book movies, and you're like, oh well, what you did was you completely abandoned what makes the character interesting, like like some yeah. of the some of the the modern Superman movies. You're like, oh, you just abandoned what makes that character interesting, and with this, I'm like, thank God. David Goyer abandoned everything about the original Blade and determined like, no, this is like, this is what the character is now. We need to modernize this concept because at the time, like we were talking about, people weren't like, people didn't go to see movies because they were superhero movies. They went to see, people saw this movie because they were like, either they wanted to see a horror movie or they wanted to see a Wesley Snipes action movie. And then they went back (laughs) and it's it's so fascinating to me that this was this was this was not marketed with like him in like the three point pose, you know, um, standing in no. front of an army, holding it, holding his shield up, like looking like a hero. It was just marketed as like this guy is one cool motherfucker. I saw so many movie trailers on TV shows and I wanted to see them and like they stood in my mind. And so like so much of like the you know, there's a lot more dangerous things out than vampires tonight. Like what? me like me like that stuff like that's how the trailers were all like if if you gave me i did not rewatch the trailer for this but this is one of those movies that i was so hyped for and i wanted to see so goddamn bad and i saw so many trailers that i just let them become a part of me that like if you were like aaron i will give you like those puzzles in super mario odyssey where you have to like try to recut the trailer from memory and I'll give you money if you get 50% or 70% of the lines and moments that are in the trailer. I would I would get it. Like I would be probably 80-90%. I felt that rewatching it too like oh him jumping out of the hospital that was in the trailer. This part's in the trailer. Him doing the the thing where he throws the boomerang in the circle and then he catches it. Like that's it. Like I remember this trailer so much and that's why I can say with a lot of confidence that like also, because I was going to movies so much in 1998, um, as, I already, as I already mentioned, like, I had, like, this was set on that idea of, you want to see a horror movie where Wesley, Wesley Snipes kicks the fuck out of vampire faces? Like, this is that movie. Yeah. 
not a superhero. Yeah, this is not this is not pitched as that, and um, I think it's fascinating uh, what this movie, how this movie transit. Like basically, you could you could watch the first thirty minutes of this and not realize it's a superhero movie. Uh, you can watch the first hour and twenty minutes of this. I mean, you can watch the you can watch the whole movie and just think it's a it's a guy, it's a cool guy, it, not that he's a comic until Blade saves the little girl in the park. And then when the La Magra stuff becomes real, like, oh, we have to defeat a world ending foe. Until then, it's just a kind of a badass 70s inspired urban crime vigilante movie with a guy with a big fucking sword. The city of New York is just this cesspool and it's full of crime. And, you know, these guys are going to take back the streets. They're going to keep normal people safe um, from these, these crazy, this crazy shit. And like, it becomes more forgivable because they're literally vampires. And um, then, but then like uh, uh, partway through the movie, maybe, I don't know, two thirds through the movie, it starts being like, well, it's, it's bigger than just, you know, killing some vampires in a club. It's actually about saving the world from this massive threat. And then, like, the movie kind of, like, if you don't like superhero movies, the movie kind of seduces you into liking superhero movies, which is the same reason I, like, Blade Two is one of my, like, top five favorite movies of all time. Um, and why I love this movie is because it, like... It, it, it spends time to convince you you like superheroes, which I think Marvel hasn't done in a long time. <laughs> um, and I, 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 I it, well, it, it like, yeah, because it's doing though you walk away from it and go, yeah, you walk away from it and go, oh yeah, I could see how that's a superhero movie. Like even the world-ending threat shit. Like I didn't, I didn't get super. That was you know how much like horror people in the nineties wanted to bring about like some sort of apocalypse, like. You know, like the, they were making the Christopher Walken fucking prophecy movies. Like everything was about like we're bringing down the prophecy in temples. Like, like Fifth Element came out, right? They're in the temple. They got all the stones. This 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 fit great. Like, I how would you even know that this is like some sort of comic book aesthetic? This is just ninety movie shit. Saving the world is just like a way to escalate the ending. Like, and that's yeah, and, and like that's I think why I loved this movie because like I was not into superhero shit for. I still am not generally into superhero shit that much, but like it, it, it spent a very long time trying to pitch me on the idea of larger than life figures. And it spent a long time with these larger than life figures just being cool motherfuckers, which is I, that's yeah. what I want. I just want I just want being cool motherfuckers. I want them living in like a real world that's like believable and tactile and I can feel it. And then at some point in it, they're like, well, we got to escalate things. We got to push things towards its conclusion. And then all of a sudden they're saving the world. Like that's that's kind of like my sweet spot. If you're going to make a movie yeah. about saving the world. Yeah. So let's cut to what I assume will be some um, some music from the movie. And that's where I want to quickly say. Um, so this is the movie that made me aware of Junkie XL because the opening scene is a Junkie XL song called Dealing with a Roster, which to call back to our techno episode on a on our sidecast. We have to watch Connected this Universe. Is, well, yeah, this is this made me buy the Junkie XL album, which was like this weird 90s techno band that I was just like a, one of those one of those things that. No one on the face of the earth besides me and my one friend who liked techno had ever heard of. So it was fucking hilarious to me that they have become like these well-known score people that, uh, you know, cool cinephiles who like 
the Mad Max Fury Road sound. It was it was very weird when all of a sudden the Fury Road thing popped up and I was like and everyone's like, You guys know Junkie XL, right? And I was like, Hi, yeah, for sure. I definitely know who Junkie XL is. I definitely listen to techno all the time. Why don't you tell yeah. me what you think of them? It's just one of those weird things where like a band that feels lost to time became super relevant. Um, but the reason I was aware of them back when they were uh, – no one was aware of them is because of this movie uh, and their song Dealing with a Roster, which opens 1998's Blade. Peter, do you want to talk more about 1998's Blade? Absolutely. Do you want to give us some alternate taglines for the film Blade? I do. Uh, Blade. Uh, Blade. Uh, they should have said that he fights Blackulas. <laughs> <laughs> he mostly fights Draculas. Does he fight a Blackula? This is also brought to you. This is such a funny time to revisit Blade because both Peter and I are going through Venture Brothers for the first time. And uh, there's a character on that, like I mentioned, Jefferson Twilight modeled after. But there's a there's an initial thing when he's trying to explain what he does because he fights Blackulas. And they're like, you fight like African-American vampires? Like, no, I fight Bl- Blackulas in England too. Look, I fight Black Draculas. I don't know what the politically correct name is. <laughs> um, yeah. I, uh, let's just get right into the beginning of this movie because I, I just have a factoid that's fascinating to me. So around 13, I got into the Blade movies, notably Blade 2. And then around 15, I got really into like goth music and notably like The Cure and New Order. I just realized eight minutes ago... <laughs> Uh, I needed to get a tattoo to mark the occasion. <laughs> Eight minutes ago, I just realized that the song that opens this movie that like, I think is like one of the key reasons why this opening is stuck with people for so long is a remix of a New Order song. Oh, I yeah. had no idea. I mean, this soundtrack was huge, right? Like when I was 13, this was an era when I would have been like Googling like Blade Club song and then someone would have titled it Blade Club song. <laughs> Not yeah. like... Uh, New Order remix, retitled this, whatever. Because A, that made it easier to find and do a DMCA takedown. Uh, B, we had all music, I guess, was like as close as we had to like an IMDb for this stuff. But that wasn't like cataloging um, every remix of every song. That was like more like actual albums coming out from major labels. So Yeah, you didn't know that the... um confusion pump panel reconstruction mix was performed <laughs> i had no idea you think there was too much reconstruction <laughs> on the pump panels that's what that's what it's called but just just hold on that is it what is it's what called, it's called right? like, i also marked off a lot of time for this and i re-listened to that new order song that i haven't heard in like you know a couple years and i was like oh this is like a re-remix like, this doesn't really sound much like, like this at all 
No, we talked about that in our techno episode too. The way they would just be like, I don't know, here's a drum from it. It's a new, it's basically it a pulls new some vocals, I think, and, and throws yeah. them in the background. But all you remember is. Yeah. It's, it's so, uh, yeah, it's so it, good. This is a great, great movie. It's a great opening to a great movie. So this is establishing itself as like an, uh, a urban, modern crime drama kind of deal. And so we watch a couple speeding in a car down a highway, headed towards a club. They get into this club. The guy is just like, you know, the the, the, the woman, the, the girl, you know who the Tracy girl is, Lords. Right? Yeah, which is so. That was when she was trying to. She had like a stretch where she was in some like small parts in like bigger movies yeah. as like a attempt to uh, move on from her past and become like a mainstream. If star. you don't know, we don't have time for Tracy Lords here. We definitely do. But not have holy time shit, the Tracy Lords story is insane. Just like her Wikipedia. Yeah. I, read the first three lines of her Wikipedia. Yeah, read, go, to, go read Wikipedia. Yeah, Basically, yeah. she took the she she fucked up the entire porn world by um yeah. she got. Lying about she her lied age. about her age, but basically just like the industry didn't care. So like there might have been a lot of Tracy Lords going around. It's just she took control of her destiny, which is pretty cool. Anyways, um, she's in this movie, yeah. which I think is rad. Yeah, I agree. You know who the guy is, right? He's the he's 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 nineties. He's Lem from, from the Shield. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's basically the screen the DJ does. Yeah, that's where it was taken from. <laughs> he, he he has such 90s face and the fact that like he oh only looks normal with like bleach blonde spiky hair is just like really unfortunate. Um Yeah. So, um Honestly, of all the things, the two things that have aged the worst is Lem and the CGI. Uh yeah, and honestly, I was like I remember being like the CGI in this movie sucks. <laughs> honestly, it's like it, there's like a 115 second sequence that I'm yeah, we'll we'll talk yeah. about. It. I actually, yeah, I don't think it, I don't think it derails anything too bad. I, I've also seen so much bad CGI because of like modern superhero movies that at this point I'm like, eh, this one's kind of cute. <laughs> well, let's yeah, we I can plan on it for a sec just so we don't have to come back. Like the thing was in '98, the CGI was bad. Like no one thought this looked amazing. People recognized that it was like the thing about computer graphics for a lot of the '90s movies is that no one was like, holy shit. It's not like a situation like Tron Legacy, right? Where, um that we talked about a few years ago were like when I saw it in 2010 Kurt Russell looked like they de-aged him magically and then when I saw it again in 2019 for a show I was like this looks like garbage <laughs> so this is distractingly bad it was bad CGI in 1998 it looked like shitty computer graphics but it was the way to accomplish that stuff and so as such like I don't have anything I'm going back to like oh yeah I remember when he explodes in blood it looks like shit and I remember the bat skeleton so it's still like serves its aesthetic purpose that it did in 1998 it's not a letdown and i think where where bad special effects or bad cgi gets you is when it's a letdown um and this this was just kind of what it was at the time and they use it sparingly besides for some blood splatter and it yeah it's it's kind of fine all right i'm going to talk about it for just like a minute here yeah let's just then, let's just do it and then yeah, i'm going to and then i'm going to pause i'm going to do my recap and then we're going to talk about the end because i want to talk about the ending of this movie and the yeah. alternate endings they did because that is really important to the cgi that would have sunk it i did you see the did you watch the alternate ending i did ending? i did and i that's, okay. i really want to talk about it in the late 90s we were not in the era where we're at now where now there are technology packages to, if you want art, an artificial wave for you know an explosion um there's uh, artificial fire packages you can buy there's an entire studio actually that all they do 
is they pull in animals, wild animals, and they capture them and do mocap on them from all sides and take tons of footage of them and track their movements so that movies like Jungle Book, any any movie with like a big, you know, CGI animal, those movies, uh, essentially, they... The, there's the, the a lot of them buy from this company that just captures animals in mocap. Yeah, a lot of, because of that. Like, there's a specialized company for essentially any type of animation you want, and a lot of studios are like, "Fuck, we're shorthanded. We need to make sure that the one thing that in this movie that needs to look good is Iron Man's transformations. We're gonna do that in house. Yeah. But all this other shit, all these explosions, this fire, whatever. We're gonna all these animals. We're gonna we're gonna um we're gonna outsource that. We're gonna we're gonna subcontract that. Um, to a different company that specializes in that. So you get this thing where over the years, CGI looks starts to look more and more the same because more and more companies are just hiring out animate the same animators who are using the same techniques, same um, specialty suites. And it's not saying these aren't getting better, but it is saying more and more movies are using the same type of technology. The best thing about the late 90s, because there's a few movies that I think in the 90s that like their CGI still holds up pretty well. Some of it is contextual. Um, is Starship Troopers looks so mm-hmm. fucking good still. There's like two bad shots in that whole movie. Yeah. Terminator 2. And and the Jurassic Park movie. And Jurassic Park, yes. Most of these movies, like, they ended up looking like shit, but like the move, the, some, certain movies, they took it as like a labor of love to build their own specially crafted effect. But all three of those notably also had a, a trick where they would cut like actual model CGI shot like that that help kind of fool your brain even now to wreck to just be like yeah this is all just happening you're 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 right you're right um yeah. especially Starship Troopers does that so yeah. well that like I'm not sure why Starship Troopers is not lauded as the greatest special effects movie of all time it looks so fucking good yeah, why haven't we done that movie that's a that's a good movie. why we we're doing Blade Two now and it's like one of my favorite movies I, I don't know we've never done The Shining either um. <laughs> Uh, we never done Ghostbusters, my favorite movie of all time. We never done all Ghostbusters. We did Ghostbusters two instead oh, of we one. Did, okay, so we've done. Sure, fine. Correct me. I'm just saying it's we've very funny. Fifty percent of the Ghostbusters. <laughs> it's very. You got me. It's very funny that we did. Um, well, I I love women, so thirty three percent of Ghostbusters. Soon to oh, be the original. I said the original Ghostbusters. <laughs> So, uh, oh, so you don't count the real ghost? No, I'm just kidding. Um, we, for some reason, just like marked off and we were like, well, we'll do them later. We'll do them later. And I'm like, buddy, something's going to happen at some point where the show has to end. We got to do the movies we want to do. You've really been pushing for that. Do you want to end the show now? Like mid-episode or? What if one of us has a serious life change or like, I don't know, I have a I have a kid and all of a sudden, like, I just can't record anymore. Like, there might be something. I mean, a lot of people have kids. I have a couple. I might have a third. Like, we'll be fine. All I'm saying, all I'm saying. You can quit the show when you're fucking in my, from my cold, dead hands, Peter. I was going to say, what if I die? But I feel like you wouldn't be like, wish we had gotten Ghostbusters in under the wire. No. I'll just, uh, though, I think our last episode should be one of us recording when the other one has died and really like ruining the show forever. Well, normally Peter would say something like this. Like, let's, let's go out on a bit. I think we're signing off on this, right? Like I want one of us to do a joke episode and it can be months later. Like it can be after like some time is healed. I assure you my, fa- if I die and you do an episode the next week, my family will not find it funny. Yeah. We got, Oh, it dep- you know, I think it depends on what age, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, um, I do think we need to really codify or I need to, especially cause I don't think it'd be like, Hey, so sorry for your loss, Molly. Kids, grandkids going to miss them. 
Did he leave the password for the sound <laughs> account anyway that you can get access to easily? <laughs> oh, Christ. Um, yeah, the whole episode will you be you trying to hire a hacker to get into my Squarespace because you feel too awkward. <laughs> if this, yeah, I'll be like, if this even makes, I'll be like a total Alex Jones, but just because they don't understand how to upload the episode on a server, like, they're not even going to let you hear this, folks, mainly. Because, uh, under some circumstances, mysterious maybe, uh, my co-host is dead in the ground, <laughs> and I don't know how to upload it. Christ, that'd be weird. Um, so, yeah. um, my, my point was, um, that, that this era, they had to do handcrafted, specialized CGI shots, and I <laughs> yeah, think the EVTA deaths in this look pretty fucking cool. Uh, I like them, yeah. They, where people basically, so there's this special compound... It makes like their hemoglobin blow up or some shit. It makes them turn into balloons. And they did a combo of these uh, CGI like they, they don't they're not hand drawn, but they look very like like illustrated. They look like they're out of a comic. They book. look. Yeah, they look a little bit like 1998 era video game stuff. But in a way that I love in a way that I love. Yeah, like I love uh, Steven Dorf blowing up. I think actually like that was the thing I was mentioning to you like it's so it's so part of the uncanny valley that it loops around to being legitimately weird and creepy looking. Yeah, I agree. And also like I just the fact that it's not your your you know cookie press style uh you know um style effect and it doesn't look like left yeah. for, like a left for dead boomer blowing up. It looks like something they handcrafted specifically for this movie. It looks great. Yeah. Um, and then... The, uh, and Steve Norrington's a good enough director to know to pan out. Yes. Uh, the one that I hate is... Oh, and then uh, when the explosions happen on those, uh, you know, martial artists earlier in the movie. Well, I guess, like, towards the end, the beginning of the third act. Um, yeah. He knows that what you need to do, like old school, is have a massive blood packet uh, explode in front of the frame. Yeah. And have it be actual liquid blood um, because that will like sell the effect. Yeah. The the effect that I hate is the souls leaving the, the vampire bodies at the end. And, and it's for two reasons. One is that the that temple that they built at the end is so specifically not Judeo-Christian. I was looking at some of the concept art and they clearly like removed pentagrams. They made it look like an ancient civilization. Yeah. It's supposed to be this like old timey culture. And I love the idea of vampirism being the secular thing. Like it gets associated with evil and the devil, but like the average vampire has no fucking clue if they're bound for hell or whatever. And I love the idea of La Magra being this like love Lovecraftian blood god yeah. that they're worshiping. But like, the, as soon as you get this into this whole like skeleton, oh, skeleton I don't know. I thing. love the bat skeleton. So I mean, the whole thing is they're part of the ritual, right? So like their essence. I love that the purebred of vampires' essence is like a giant bat that resides within them. I fucking love that. Like the CGI is shitty, but I I like the the visual representation works really well for me. That it's one of those things I can ignore. Yeah, I, I just like literally pulling itself out of their mouth. Like I, that's good. Like skeletons leaping out of a mouth 
even and a bat skeleton at that, a giant bat skeleton, Peter. I'm I'm in for all that. I just don't think it matches that cool that cool like uh, sort of ancient, grimy, gritty aesthetic of the rest of the movie. I don't know. Like I don't think like it's Judeo Christian to be like, yeah, basically their essence is a giant bat skeleton that resides within them. Yeah, it's just like, so, I, I it's just so like medieval pictures of hell, right? Like these bat demons. Like it, it's just it, it's it, it doesn't work. I mean, they're vampires though. Um. I yeah. That doesn't work for me. That's a big. And one. then we'll get to the the special effects that didn't end up in the movie. Um. After I do the recap. So recap. Yeah. Blade. He's a half man, half vampire, also known as the Daywalker, killing machine whose mother was bitten by a vampire when she was pregnant. Uh, essentially, all of their strengths, none of their weaknesses, except for one. Um, he does have the need to thirst. If he doesn't drink, he gets weak, and he's been drinking the serum to keep himself. Um, uh, strong, but the serum is getting weaker. He's been hunting vampires for years, and we uh, see one of his hunts to open the movie. Um, so he walks into uh, the club. He walks into the club um, and has this amazing fight sequence that everyone listening to this knows. And if you don't, go watch the movie because it rules. Um, it's one of the most like famous fight sequences I think of the past thirty years. Um, and he absolutely decimates a crowd. He has a katana that has a um, special trick in the handle that it ex- it, it, if it uh, doesn't detect, like, Blade's hand there, um, it will spring out, cut off the person's hand. He has silver bullets, automatic weapons with silver. Like, he's fast. He's quick. He's got bulletproof armor. He's got a cape. He's sleek, leather. Um, he's just like a cool motherfucker and the techno is playing, um, and, uh, he absolutely decimates this club full of vampires and he sets this one vampire Quinn on fire. Then the cops show up and he has to bounce, which we'll get, we'll get to in a little bit, but there is like some interesting theming, like about blackness, uh, against the system that I, I, and cops are bad. I, I like it. It's very subtle in this. I like it, and I think if they made the movie now, they would have to make it much more obvious, and I think that's good. Like, I like yeah, I like what they did here, because, like, the movie is actually kind of quiet about its themes, and then um, if they made it now, like, absolutely, the Mar- Marshall uh, Ali movie, like, that they're making, you know, in three or four years, they're absolutely going to have to contend with the fact that, like, this is a... Um, Black man running around, theoretically, New York or L.A., um, slicing up vampires, most of them white and and, uh, European. The European, they have a a connection to the cops, which keeps them safe um, because there's this entire vampire nation. And if they didn't embrace race the way they did with Black Panther and even maybe go a step further because Blade is like a a boots on the ground, kind of like Daredevil character – um, it'd be enormous cowardice and a waste of Marshala uh, Ali's talent. It's mostly unspoken, but there is a moment where Frost is referring to Blade as an Uncle Tom, which is I, yeah. I didn't catch when I was a kid, obviously. Yeah. What do you think about that? I, I think that's a really fascinating way for like Deacon Frost, who's a character who's never going to get a, to get under his skin. He's never going to Deacon Frost. Him, like right. One of the things we'll we'll talk about this. Like Deacon Frost is a. a one of the reasons I loved him as a kid is like he's a extremely uh, smart, uh, well-read. <laughs> like, like it, it's so clearly intentional on his part as a way to um, so the 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 kind of discourse that like may shake him in the way that he's he's trying to. Um, it's I mean obviously terrible thing to say 
to 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 played as a character. But uh, spoiler alert: Deacon Frost, not a great guy. I re- also really like. There's a oh, and he's referring to him as a as an Uncle Tom because Blade is kind of stuck between the two worlds of vampires. Yeah, he's and- he's selling he's selling out. The vampires are actually more close to his kind, and he's selling out vampires by uh, trying to help their food source essential yes yes so yeah it, it, it's a it's a line that stuck out for me because like it's the only line i would consider unsubtle in the rest of the movie um you know what else uh stuck out of me that i actually think the movie does again that kind of subtle nod to holy shit this could go really wrong for you is when he's beating the shit yes. out of the familiar cop in broad daylight so white cop he's beating the shit out of him because he's a familiar to deacon frost he's in service to deacon frost and uh karen is like hey like what are you doing? It's like he's forgotten. Um, he's like, it's like he's forgotten that he's like a black man operating in America, but he hasn't. Yeah. He's just like, this war is bigger than than this yeah. bullshit. And I'll beat up any cop that gets He'd be way. able to do flips and run away. He's pretty confident about that. But like the look on uh, Karen's face is like, hey, like this is going to be bad for a lot of people if you don't knock it off. This is also a great point to mark how fucking funny Wesley Snipes is in this movie when he needs to be. Well, I mean, Wesley Snipes has always been a very gifted comedic. He's so fucking funny. Besides, like, the straight comedies that he's in, like, like White Men Can't Jump. Demolition Man is another movie I'd love to do on the show. Oh, yeah. Demolition Man rules, and partially because Wesley Nielsen is such a charismatic, funny-ass villain. Or Wesley Snipes. Yeah, what did I say? Wesley Nielsen. It's <laughs> 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 the only time on earth that Leslie Nielsen and Wesley Snipes have been confused. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't think I can go on. I think that's the end of the show right well, there. Well, thank you all uh, for listening. And we just confused Wesley Snipes <laughs> and Leslie Nielsen. <laughs> I let earlier you confused Kurt Russell, Jeff Bridges, and I was like, eh, it's fine. I'm not even going to stop him. Like, people know what he's when talking about. When did I do that? Um, you're talking about Tron. I was like, I'm not even going to stop oh. him. Like, people know what he's talking about. Like, that's silly. This is one that, like, I had to mark because it's so fucking funny. <laughs> Uh, we record these when we're very tired. We're sleepy boys. Um, also, Aaron is recording two hours later than me, which is a little different. I, I miss, yeah, obviously that's not it's not Kurt Russell. Um, although his his fake face looks a lot like Kurt Russell, which is what I uh, yes. was thinking. And they do they um, look they look at when when they're you know at the same age. Obviously, uh, yeah. Jeff Bridges is much older. They do look similar, and I was like, eh, it's fine. People people know what he's talking about. Yeah, it's okay to correct me. I bet this than in our reviews. But it was like a it was like a side path to us talking about CGI, and I was like, it's not really worth stopping him for this. Like people know what he's talking about. For this, I needed I needed to mark the occasion. <laughs> I don't know if because I said so fucking funny. That like my brain's like well he probably means, <laughs> probably means the star Nielsen. of the Naked Gun Leslie Nielsen. Oh, I'm crying. I need to wipe my tears away. Uh, my I feel like I just got an app workout. Um, so Blade says uh to this white cop, 
Although the white cop's like, suck my dick or something to him. He's a little weaselly. Yeah. I hate, I fucking hate well, this Well, we like, hold on. Yeah, let, let, do this. Then we got to get through this plot because the episode's almost over. Um, I got to go watch my favorite Wesley Nielsen movie. <laughs> um, so well, the little cop goes like, you know, suck my dick or whatever. He's a little, little punk bitch. And, um, and and Blade goes, motherfucker, you suck on me. <laughs> he pulls his gun yeah. out and the guy manages to get away. And it's, so, it's such a fucking funny line reading. And it's the only, it's one of the only things I miss in Blade 2, which we'll talk about more next week, is I miss the comedy. He gets less and less funny as the movies go on. I think that they missed something that Stephen Norrington picked up on, which is like, Wesley Snipes is funny as shit. So there's a moment when he he nails what is presumably a very easy shot for himself when he pins Quinn to the wall with the stake. And he does a little cute like fist pump just to himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Genuinely made me laugh, like cackle. And then there's a moment when uh, he is in the hospital and uh, I'll just continue this through the plot. So he's going to, Quinn has been set on fire. He needs to go and finish the job because the cops chased him off, basically. Um, and, but before he can get there, Quinn has murdered one of the, the the hospital workers and bitten another one, Karen, who will be the third lead in this movie. Um, fourth lead, I guess. She's between Whistler and him. She gets bitten. Blade comes to finish the job off. He comes to the hospital. Um, so he starts fucking fucking up Quinn, who gets his arm bit, his arm sliced off like one of three times in the movie. And... <laughs> And there's a moment where cops storm in and, you know, he's a black man and a black man with a sword. So the, the these shitty cops just start shooting and they bounce all of his uh, off of all of his body armor. And he goes, motherfucker, are you out of your damn mind? So hard. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and even just like the ending line, too. Right. Like, which could have been eye rolling, like works here where he like when he kills Frost is like. Oh, some motherfuckers always trying to skate uphill. Yeah, it, it's it's such a good line reading. There's a reason it's kind of like a meme at this point. It's amazing. So Wesley Snipes very funny, but I mean he's no Wesley Nielsen. He, I mean, he's no Leslie Snipes, a person that exists in my head that went into the Brundle fly machine. <laughs> <laughs> that guy is fucking hilarious. I gotta say, <laughs> the best accidental thing I've ever said in my life, Wesley Nielsen. Yeah, it's fine. I'm sure. I'm sure Wesley Snipes' mother confuses him with Leslie Nielsen all the time. Well, fun fact, Peter, I'm not his mother, <laughs> so it's actually okay if I confuse it. Uh, I don't know what like th- that is that moment that it is like midnight my time and my brain broke for a second. Like funny, funny. Who's funny? Asley? Oh, Nielsen is probably what he's uh, going with. And we yeah, it, it rules. Okay, okay. Anyways. Plot recap. Blade is hunting down Deacon Frost. He has his buddy Whistler, who's an older guy who rescued him when he was a young orphaned vampire and, and trained him to be the person he is today. Whistler is kind of his his uh his co-pilot, his lead. He helps like give him some ballast and help connect him to humanity and help keep him going in the vampire war. He's kind of his like technical assistant dash like backup. He's cool Alfred. Chris Christopherson, just a rad motherfucker. Blade takes this woman, Karen, back. And he basically, uh, throughout the plot of this movie, he's going to be revealing plot points to Karen. She's sort of an audience surrogate, an outsider, the noob, who like, when Blade says something to Karen, he's saying it to the audience. Um, Yeah, and very different from the movies of the era. Uh, 
she is not a damsel in distress and instead just goes on the missions with him. Yeah, it's it's actually really fun because like they, yeah, they kind great. of dispense with her after they give her her initial antiviral treatment. They give her like garlic and silver or something to like basically like help fight off the infection, even though they're pretty sure it won't happen. She is a hematologist, um, so she's working on a cure for vampirism this entire movie while also going with Blade on on sort of like um, she's doing like ride alongs with him. Yeah, like here's your gun. Yeah, but she doesn't just stay in the car. It's like, okay, well, shoot these guys. Here's your gun. Yeah, but Blade is never like, Karen, kill that, that vampire. He's doing all the work. She's not like a damsel in distress. She gets to save the day at the end of the movie. Nabushe Wright, this actor, she has not done a whole lot of movies. She's really good in this. She's really good in Dead Presidents, but she's not in a lot of movies. Because um, I think she's really, really charming and she has a lot of, like, char- charisma to add yeah. to this movie. But she's largely just, uh, you know, an audience surrogate, but, like, written by someone who actually knows how to write characters, so they make her a real character. Yep. She's trying to... So they're hunting Deacon Frost. They're going from club to club. They're going from, like... Diff- they're they're going from different locations trying to hunt him down, hunt him down. Deacon Frost. Uh, and uh, Blade eventually discovers by interrogating, um, like, a, 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 the, the, one of Deacon Frost's, like, intelligence officers, who's a uh, large, large vampire named uh, Pearl. Um, he discovers the, uh, the plot, which is that um, Deacon Frost <coughs> is trying to ra- raise up a Lovecraftian super cosmic god uh, named Lamagra, who will raise, with the proper sacrifice will raise uh, hell. Everybody in, in in its path into a vampire on planet Earth, and then eventually everyone on Earth will be a vampire. Um, and this is uh, basically Frost wants to take the war to the humans. The vampire council is like, we're going to play this conservative. We're going to allow, you know, here or there vampires can hunt off the streets. But like, other than that, like we need to keep our 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 we ourselves away from the humans because the humans can hunt us down. The idea is that there's a lot less vampires than there are humans, and if they lost political power, there's a there's a peace that's existing that allows them to flourish, get a food supply without having the world's governments turn on them. Absolutely. So there's a <clears throat> so Frost has like his own little inner crew. Donald Logue is in it. Um, yeah. just needed to note that. And he's trying, and he eventually, uh, Frost kills a member of the council and takes over. Um, and he's basically taking them hostage. Uh, that kills a member. He kills Udo. He Kier. kills Udo Kier, who played fucking Dracula for, uh, for, yeah. for, this is his third, third appearance as a vampire. For the Andy Warhol vampire movies. Uh, do you remember, do you, have you, I haven't seen this movie, but I've seen no. the YouTube clip. Um, what Udo Kier, uh, when he's like a vampire in Venice or whatever. No, he's a vampire in Italy and he's trying to yeah. find virgin yeah. blood. Do you remember this? Uh, I haven't seen the clip, no. Um, <laughs> so Udo Kier is a vampire. He's in Italy and he's trying to find a virgin and he can't find it. So it's like a joke about like, you know, the 70s and sexual liberation yeah. or whatever. And uh, he bites into a woman, thinks she's a vampire and he can taste the difference between uh, a virgin and not a virgin. He goes... The blood of this horse is killing me. Leslie Nielsen was in Dracula Dead Loving It, so let's compare the, the performance. <laughs> what if that was the weird synaptic connection, is that you connected I Blade think, being I think a so. vampire and Leslie Nielsen? 
maybe that's the one that kills me, right? Like the informant, like a certain phrase comes together in your brain and you drop dead. Like my my tie is also cornflower blue, and then you just drop dead. What if there's just a <laughs> phrase in each of our brains that activates? I hope, and then you drop dead. I hope that's the only reason I read books. I'm hoping to find it. Got to find that phrase. Uh, I like that the the conflict is really like, you know, there are there are people who are born vampires, right? This is not a vampire universe where the only way to create progeny is by biting, right? Like vampires can fuck, vampires can have vampire kids, and um, there is a there is a um, split in the idea of what a true vampire is—one who is born a vampire—and the idea that you know people turned vampires are purebloods. And so Stephen Dorff is kind of leading this, like uh, you know, younger person, younger vampire revolution on the idea that. Uh, people who are not born vampires deserve um, deserve to to have influence in their world as well. They, they really like limit themselves to the lore here. They do, but every the, the what this movie does so well, they don't go into deep into all this stuff. But it's it's got the Pulp Fiction magic, right? Where it's like everything you hear, you kind of want to know more about because it's it feels really dynamic and interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like it, it gives you a little bud of an idea, and then it moves on. And um, there's like there's like a club that Blade goes into, um, which is this Japanese club with this like awesome Japanese girl band with like a, a a like really deep like dubby background. All of them are like Japanese businessmen watching this. All these like and like I love the idea that like Deacon Frost is is like catering to a certain type of young rambunctious like baby vamp. Who's like loves techno and wants to keep living their life as like a late nineties like techno freak, um, but there's also like other subcultures in vampirism. Yeah. I love that because the sequel builds on that. Like the sequel takes it to Europe, and then it's like there are other vampire subcultures. Like there's some commonalities. There's always these safe houses. What the style is and how people carry themselves can differ greatly. Blade eventually ends up taking the fight to Deacon Frost. Deacon Frost makes a pitch to him, and he says like you know. Come join me. Typical superhero shit. The movie gradually increases its superhero shit uh, as time goes on. Blade takes the war too hard to Deacon Frost to the point that Deacon Frost decides to go to Blade's uh, safe house, infect Whistler, beat the shit out of him, and leave him to quote unquote die and become a vampire. And uh, Whistler commits suicide. Uh, over over doing that, which motivates Blade to move to the ending, which is very Matrix-like. There's a Skyrise. Blade takes uh, special weapons that Karen has given him, and also Karen has, at this point, introduced the idea of a cure. Um, like, Blade, you can take a cure. You'll be a human, you'll lose your powers, but you'll be human. And Blade absolutely fucks up every vampire in the, the building until he gets tased because he's distracted by... Oh, his mother that he thought died is alive, which is can we talk about that right here? I I fucking hate it. I hate that too. The the whole thing I guess it's part of the comics, even like that ninety-four run that I didn't finish, like that Frost and, and his mom end up like being a a couple or something like that. It's it such is, an it is so late in the game. It doesn't have like an emotional impact because Blade is so like, oh, you know, he's he's affected by it, but not affected in the way that, like, it stops any of his plans or derails anything, really. Like, it's just kind of a – it's a little bit of a middle, middle finger. It doesn't make sense why Deacon Frost has been holding this on for as long as they've kind of had this Cold War or Hot War or whatever through stuff. It's it's dumb. And then, yeah, the there's not any, like, 
the the emotional moment where he kills her, it doesn't feel like it exists. It's a, it it's is, a it's box to check thing. before he moves on to Deacon Frost. It is the one thing in this movie that like doesn't add anything and and feels like a waste of time. Like if he, they just got there and they put him in the thing and then he escapes and he kills people, same movie. Like the mom stuff just adds nothing besides some weird like oh vampires don't uh don't ascribe to our idea ideas of incest. Yeah, like, it, it, it's one of those things where um at the end of the movie they throw a bunch of superhero comics bullshit at me and I'm like oh you were operating on a really great level before when it was just this awesome crime drama about this badass samurai sword wielding vampire killer now you're just like throwing comic book cliches at me because like you you liked these comics i guess um because that also influences a fairly a fairly um big cliche that i think is can be traced entirely to Tim Burton, which is that Deacon Frost killed. Okay. So Deacon Frost killed Blade's mom as in the original comics. I think Blade's mom was a sex worker. Deacon Frost killed her while she was pregnant. And I think sex workers took care of him um, while, you know, whatever he was an orphan. And eventually, you know, he became an orphan orphan and he was like hunting people on the street and blah, blah, blah. So that's, that's old school. The part where they reveal in the third act that, that, that he, you know, that Blade doesn't know all this already, that, that in the third act that he, they reveal that Deacon Frost is, is, uh, um, bitten Blade's mother and is basically responsible for Blade's entire, uh, modus operandi. Yeah. Um, is so yeah, dumb and it's taken directly from the Burton, uh, Batman movie. It's a, it's a problem that permeates from, I think, like, phantom menace type philosophy onward right the idea that things need to be connected that we need to know the origins of shit otherwise like things just happening can't just happen like obviously this wasn't uh, a reason for that but the, that's something that has got continues to this day right like this we, we had 20 years after phantom menace movies that generally people don't like of them trying to make prequels to everything that nobody likes to try to reveal something that nobody cared about in the first place which is how did we end up here i need to know all the stuff and, that got and, and, and what's amazing is in this own movie and in the sequel we have a much better more emotional kind of connection to why someone would hate vampires and it's not this epic um oedipal <laughs> sex thing um it's uh whistler in this movie it's just like a vampire came to my house and murdered my family uh, i've been hunting him ever since in the sequel scud has this whole monologue that's kind of mirroring Whistler's where he's like, oh, so I was camping with these two chicks. I thought we were going to have a three-way. They started tearing into my flesh. Blade uh, came and saved me. And like that... Well, Blade's that, origin too, right? Oh, yeah. I was... They killed my mom. Yeah. Like, that is satisfying. The idea of like, vampires fucked my life up. The war spilled over onto me and now I'm I'm going to take the war back to them. That's enough. Yeah. We're good. You made my mom a vampire. No, I really hate you guys. Like, like it's, he's devoted his life to killing him. He hates him. It's one guy who had his one life ruined. Like that is that Well, is and at no point like it wouldn't have been good, but if his like it would have made at least sense narratively if he like has like moments where he's like I got to we got to like his he is instinct to just be a 
a single-minded vampire killer gets derailed by him trying to use Karen to save his mom and the blood serum he wastes. And so Deacon Frost gets – like, there's ways to – again, I don't think it necessarily would have been needed or satisfying to at least make that introduction make sense for further consequences that occur because Blade loses a single-minded focus, right? Like, that makes sense plot-wise. He has a single-minded focus to kill vampires ever since his mom was killed by vampires. Oh, shit, his mom's a vampire. Now, is it potentially changing um, what he's devoting his life to? Does he does he change what he's about to do in a way that causes some sort of impact into the story? And the answer to all that is no. Yeah, I'm with you. So, yeah, and then there's another superhero bullshit cliche that they throw in at the end. Um, I love this movie, but, like, there's just a bunch of bullshit that happens before we can get to the finale that I'm like, why? And one of them is the choice to become human or not. Blade, obviously, there's I think that there's sequences of with the serum that are actually like pretty great. Like there's a scene where Blade gets shot up with the serum and it's been a while and his serum is not working well. And Blade is having convulsions and he and and um, and Whistler and Chris Christopherson are having a moment where they're Chris Christopherson is, is injecting him while he's strapped into a chair and is ho- gripping his hand. And you can see both yeah. of their muscles gripping you can see their veins popping out in in 4k it's so fucking like it's it's such an intimate sweet moment um that's made sweeter once you can actually make out the details and um and whistler is just there he's like i've done this a thousand times i will always be by your side till the day i fucking die yeah just show someone who's shown almost no vulnerabilities at like his most vulnerable based on like what he needs to survive. Yeah, and, and this idea that, like, Blade could might choose to be human is just, like, it's, I don't knock this movie for it, but it's just, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a history in comic books that they're, like, half the movie is just about figuring out, like, whether or not Spider-Man wants to become human again, or... Even, like, the whole, I mean, the whole Chris Nolan movies are about how does Batman stop winning for him is to like i get to stop being batman it's like that is not as interesting as you think it is chris nolan because no one in the audience wants him to stop being batman yeah because we're seeing fucking batman movies i mean like the only way that would be interesting is if there's a big threat batman you know stops it but he gets really like fucked up by it psychologically and then the last two hours of the movie are these smaller little fucked up threats that he could easily stop and he just sits and watches it on the news and eventually he gets rid of his TV and it's just this sad drama about Batman gradually slipping back into normie life and he never comes out of it. That is literally the only thing you can do and that movie would make zero dollars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and also, yeah, because I wouldn't necessarily want to see that either because like, yeah, can, I just, can Batman do Batman stuff? Yeah. Like, that's... That's what that's what I like about him. But yeah, I yeah, so he becomes Lamagra. Um so yeah, um there's this awesome temple sequence where uh where Steven Dorf becomes Lamagra, the blood god. And um he, the, the 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 he needs to sacrifice this entire vampire council. Uh Blade has a fight with him. When Blade slices him in half, he reconstitutes himself. So he needs something that actually fucks with his blood blood and he shoots him up with this EDTA. Um, which comes back in the sequel, which um, makes your hemoglobin blow up and he blows up the the blood god. Um, and then yeah. at the end of the movie, he and Karen... He's in Russia. They rise up to the surface and he's like, I would like to remain as as, as the daywalker. Wesley Snipes impressions. Just start doing a Leslie Nielsen voice. <laughs> I think I'm going to stay and be the, the daywalker. <laughs> I think that's Rodney Dangerfield. I think it is. I think I'm going to be... 
Ooh, how do you do Leslie Nielsen? Like, just do one of the things where he proudly announces something that no one is cares about, but it's just an awkward moment for him to do it. Like, I'm going to be a vampire. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think's better, um, the Nicolas Cage vampire movie or the Leslie Nielsen one? Oh, 100% the Nicolas Cage one. The Mel Brooks' Dracula Dead and Loving It is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Mm, I haven't seen it. Not a big fan of the Nicolas Cage one, though. Yeah, but but I am, so uh, an easy one. So, uh, the the movie ends, and then he goes to Drac. He goes to Dracula. He goes to Moscow to show that he's taken. He, he he's this is a roving band. They're taking this war international, um, which sets us up for the sequel, which all takes place in Eastern Europe. Fun fact: You know who was supposed to be the vampire at the end of the movie? Uh, Stephen Norrington was supposed to play. Uh, Michael Morbius or whatever at the end of the movie. No, it was supposed to be Whistler, who's now a vampire. That he I didn't hear that. I didn't hear that. Yeah. Um, I'm glad they cut that because I like that they yeah, bring... Very important. I'm glad they bring back Whistler in the sequel. Otherwise, it would be, uh, it would be un- unadulterated... Um, <laughs> unadulterated scud. And you really need to, to adulterate your scud. You gotta adulterate scud. Uh, yeah, so the original ending to this movie, Peter, is that – so when he becomes Lamagra, it's he just that he has Lamagra. These, he he – uh, Steven Dorff just has like reconstituting powers that normal stuff doesn't work. Like he's still Steven Dorff. They have a big fight. It's good. It's cool. Um, he slashes him good. It doesn't matter this time because he's fucking Lamagra. Originally though, like the way that he describes Lamagra coming in is like – it essentially is a blood tornado or hurricane that like starts at a point and expands until it's taken over the whole world like a cyclone um, until everyone's a vampire and there's like eternal blood for everyone. Uh, so that's what they tried to animate first. I've seen the alternate ending. They do stress that the alternate ending is like this wasn't all the way finished special effects, but we realized we had a huge problem on our hands. Uh, that's a that's a that's a tall task, like a living blood tornado that you can interact with. It's a it's a task for twenty twenty one CGI. Yeah, CGI. It was not uh, workable in nineteen ninety eight, and thankfully they realized it wasn't workable, so we don't have like fucking. Uh, Scorpion King, the rock memes about how bad something looks and ruins a movie. Yeah, so I love the concept of, of um, you know, Lamagra becoming this larger blood god as opposed to Steven Dorff with red eyes. Um, yeah. But they, uh, I saw the alternate ending and even with my, my squid, big old squints on and being like, yeah, that might look, no, it, it, it's, it's garbage. Um, it looked really shitty. There's literally a shot of Blade holding on to a pole um, because the, the yeah. Lamagra torna- blood tornado is, is whipping around some. Well, it's windy. Are you saying there wouldn't be wind in a blood tornado, Peter? All I'm saying is uh, it wouldn't be the sort of wind that you might see in a Wiley e. Coyote cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh no where did blade go i don't know follow that blade shaped hole in the temple <laughs> uh and the producer steven de luca is like i think a little bit political here and he's like uh yeah people didn't like losing steven dorf um you know they yeah. like they liked seeing steven dorf um but like really like it looked like shit and it didn't test well so they had to do reshoots on the ending and they removed a lot of the different endings and they they did a lot of different alternate versions of the ending and i think we live in the universe where we had the best version of the ending 
I agree. Which is rare to say. Usually we end up in like... Especially from like test screenings and stuff like that. I, I, you know, when I bought this on DVD, 1999, 2000, it's probably one of the first 10 DVDs I bought based on like when I got a DVD player and when this movie came out. And it was, it was one of the New Line Platinum collections. New Line was one of the cinema, you know, the, the studios that very quickly was like, we're going to actually do a ton of cool shit with our DVDs. So they had the alternate ending on there. And of course, like... That was still the era where, like, a special features DVD that had the biggest thing was deleted scenes and alternate endings for, for like, a high schooler. It was like, I get to see more of this movie I like or where it could have gone, which quickly becomes the things that you never, ever watch because you realize why they're deleted scenes and alternate endings on most, on most discs that you bought from there. But it was still early. And so, I watched it. I remember still in, like, probably, like, 2001 or two, and I was like, this is fucking terrible thank god they didn't they didn't go this route i do want to mention steven dorf um taking a, a nice oh, uh, I think, yeah I, I think he's taking a nice reprieve from teaching us how to play golf and probably do our taxes and other <laughs> things to to really say like what would it be like if i was like a vampire punk? so is this guy on um, like stilts or something in this movie like is he standing on like three or four soapboxes one of the few special effects that holds up well. I will also say that, like, the way that the real dwarf couldn't stand is just to stand. Because I – spoiler, Peter. Like, dwarf is just Tim Conway on his knees, which is probably how he begged the studio head that produced those video cassettes to, to let him do it. <laughs> Please. The career is just not going in the direction I like. Let me and Vincent Chiavelli here play golf, I guess. I don't know. This actually leads, uh, as we wrap up this episode, lead, lead into Blade 2. So, Peter, I've known the Blade 2 is one of your favorite movies of all time. For a long time, I like Blade 2. I have nothing against Blade 2. It's just, I've seen Blade 20 times. I loved Blade. One of the things I loved about Blade was its depiction of vampire villainy, which, uh, you know, Interview with the Vampire did this. As well, although Interview with Vampire is a little bit different in that, like, the the protagonist and the antagonist are all vampires, so it's, like, it's a little bit less of a a, a clear line between um, sophistication or something like that. But, like, you know, most vampire movies are, like, or monster movies, there's a... There's a Dracula level of sophistication, but there's this kind of, like, I can't, you know, escape my... (laughs) desires and my monsterism and stuff like that and um the thing i liked about the portrayal here is like yes the secret society stuff that had all this like power this idea of like this underbelly that is like profiting from the literal like devouring of an underclass is like is like some cool shit the idea that they're like it's not like they see blood at any point in this movie and are like oh shit our senses went away because like our our desire for blood is like greater than anyone's ability to bear. Like they're powerless and they're a slave to their desires. They're just like, you know, people who have evil, rich people who, uh, which is a little bit of an oxymoron, uh, but that um, are establishing a society that's based on literally uh, profiting and off the, 
the the life force of 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 uh, an underclass to them. And so Stephen Dorff was like so fucking cool as a way like he wasn't he wasn't like an angry lunatic. He was the smartest person in the room. Right in all sides, he's trying to like figure out this. You know, he's he's using this internet decoding machine to figure out um, uh, how to unlock this prophecy that'll give him power. He's like generally calm for most of this this movie. Like he has some moments of anger, but in general, he has this very like chill atmosphere and like I'm doing a thing and I'm trying to get to my goal and I have these people surrounding me and. Uh, some of my sidekicks are idiots that I sometimes get annoyed with, but like I keep it together pretty well, and that's why I'm going to be successful because I'm not going to lose my shit. I'm not going to do the normal villain stuff. And one thing I love about this movie is how well he succeeds. Right, like he gets everything he wants. Blade is just a more powerful force, but like it, it shows a level of intelligence and competency to mon- uh, you know horror movie villainy that you rarely get to see, and like the performance match that now. One of the things I thought was a step down in Blade 2, a movie that I like, but why I always consider this the better of the two, knowing that I haven't seen either in about 15 years before these rewatches, and I haven't rewatched Blade 2 yet, is that, you know, Blade 2 with the Del Toro thing is focusing a lot more on the monster aspect of the vampires, which my guess is upon rewatch will end up holding up way better for me and I'll end up loving it uh, in the same way that you do, Peter. That's been my suspicion for a long time when I finally got back around to these movies. Uh, But at the time, it felt like, oh, my favorite part about Blade was the Steven Dorff character what he and what he represented and did as an antagonist and them going to something that seemed more conventional felt like taking something special away from what I loved. So I will say this, Steven Dorff's performance now seeing it for the first time with fresh eyes and in 15 years, uh, it's not a bad performance. It is, it is not this, uh, acting school uh, symposium that I thought he was giving when I was 15. But uh, but uh, it doesn't hold up quite in the same way. But it, it is like, it just was different for me at the time. I have a theory uh, about Stephen Dorff. Yeah. <clears throat> so, Christian Slater, patron saint of Slater's. Yeah. Um, is emulating uh, Jack Nicholson in a way even Albert that, Clifford is 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 uh, hurting Jack, is uh, emulating Jack Nicholson in a way that genuinely hurts most Christian Slater performances. Uh, most Christian Slater performances are very bad because they are emulating uh, Jack Nicholson. And I like him as an actor, but like True Romance works because Tony Scott like didn't put up with that shit and made him like yeah break down a little bit. Yeah, uh, Stephen Dorff is emulating. Um, <laughs> Emulating Christian Slater in the good movies, the bad movies. Um, And the nice thing about that is that it's a copy of a copy, which means that he has now he's now several steps removed from a direct imitation. And when you're several steps removed of a direct imitation, you can kind of become your own thing. And I think that Stephen Dorff does have something here. But there's this thing that's just like. I want to point this towards uh, David S. Goyer because he is the he is the third character I want to introduce this month. Um, The third major creative behind the camera figure I want to introduce this month. Um, David, because we're going to talk about him a lot during Blade Trinity and a little bit during uh, Blade 2. 
Stephen Dorff like really leans into whatever script he's given and the script has a lot of fuckings into every one of his lines and like while I'm yeah. generally like a, an obscene motherfucker um, this like he, he in order a, like, to add fucking emphasis who, to this yeah. fucking line I'm going to put fucking every yeah. fourth word and like it, it felt like they added the oh, fucking every fourth word and then cut out random fucking. <laughs> it was just like, yeah. and it, it like it, 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 uh, it's not so much Stephen Dorff's problem as the script, but also Stephen Dorff doesn't know how to lean into that and like underplay some of the fucking. He just uses fucking as like an escalation point and he reaches this climax yeah, I, where there's nowhere to go. I have a, I have a fun theory that like you, when you age into your ability to swear effectively is when you figure out that in the phrase, are you fucking kidding me? The emphasis should be on kidding and not on fucking. That's a good, that's a good theory. Like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, as opposed to like, are you fucking kidding? Like, yeah. that's the pro. That's like, I learned to swear and I want to hit the, the fucking. And so it takes away from like the part that's supposed to be the, the, the emphasis where the emphasis you're, is supposed to be. And it's something that little kids do. And it's you're terrible. totally right because, uh, fucking is supposed to be just a, uh, you know, like wake up, like we're, I'm being yeah. serious right now. Um, and then when you get, it's actually a kindness because when you get to kidding, yeah. you're supposed to be like, are you fucking kidding me? Like when you yeah. get to, when you get to kidding, that's when like everyone knows like okay shit needs to stop we need to have a conversation yeah fucking is preparing you yeah it's not it's not the meat right it's the appetizer exactly it's it's a it's a sous-son um not yeah not not every fucking is a meal and <laughs> not every fucking yeah, is i agree i agree that every fucking in this movie is like um uh, like a three quarts and he can't you can't escalate from fucking like you no. when you hit it that hard like it's yeah you're gonna be fucking cattle with the fucking like it just it it sounds like yeah. it sounds like a person who doesn't want to wear their mask at Costco at this point to me. Stephen Dorff I think is good in this movie. I'm not actually knocking him that much, but I don't I, I don't think it's like a genius thing. The next, yeah, I don't think it's like one of the best villain performances of all time. Like I thought it was at age fifty. There's drawbacks to the villain in uh, Nomak in uh, Blade Two that are extremely one to one with the the drawbacks to the villain in Hellboy Two, which is that he's a little bit too theatrical. But the but the deal is like I kind of prefer a villain who's like playing it as a theater actor as opposed to a villain being like we're gonna make this gritty and grimy. And like this is the first in my mind, ignoring you know the Punisher movie, ignoring all the Tim Burton movies. This is the first, I think, grimdark superhero movie. And I think David S. Goyer, we can both thank and fucking hate for the grimdark vibes. Yeah. Because he helped write one of the Crow movies. He helped write Dark City. Like, he's he is, like, immersed in that sort of let's bring comic books. He helped write Batman Begins, right? Like, he was involved yes. in that pretty heavily. Before this. Yeah. Before this. And then he gets to yeah. Batman Begins. He writes uh, – he's, he's a key voice in Dark Knight, Dark Knight. So, here's what I think. He's, we, should, we should laud him for helping write Dark Knight, Batman Begins, Blade 1, Blade 2. Like – that is something that, like, you can never take away from him, no matter how much you hate some of his DC stuff. But, like, the scripts for Dark Knight Rises, Batman vs. Superman, Man of Steel, Blade Trinity, Ghost Rider, Unborn, all of those scripts are abysmal. Like, Dark Knight Rises yeah. is actually one of the most interesting movies, that is interesting comic book movies, because it's basically Chris Nolan 
trying to direct his way away from all the sc- like Chris Nolan is such a good director that he's able to direct over the massive plot gaps in that script <laughs> and the logical yeah. gaps and the dramatic gaps. I have you seen Joker? and the fact that they didn't they didn't know what to do with the story after their like lead for the third movie their co-lead for the third movie yes. died off screen. So David S. Goyer actually is very much responsible for um, our modern superhero age. And he is responsible for fighting and getting Marvel in their teeth in the game. And then he ends up being responsible for getting DC's teeth in the game. And I don't think he's, yeah. like, identified enough as, like, one of the reasons. Like, you know, Kevin Feige and Stan Lee and blah, blah, blah. The, all those people have been pushing for Marvel to spend more money on their movies for a long time. And Sam Raimi, obviously, should get credit. I want to do those movies at some point. Um, Sam Raimi gets credit because he basically was like, hey, superhero movies on this scale can be viable. People love these movies. Two out of three of them, at least. Um, David S. Goyer is the third character I want to introduce, behind the scenes character I want to introduce this month because... He helped bring, um, for better or for worse, us into the modern age. And then he was like, I want to keep making these dark, gritty, serious. His idea of what what was serious was like violent and challenging what the original source material was, which is great in like A Dark Knight or The Blades, but it's not great in like A Man of Steel or Batman versus Superman. Yeah, too much of uh, – and I'm not saying what was the trigger for Goyer, but I do feel like one of my big problems with the way the comic book movies are made in general – and this is probably a blockbuster vibe, uh, in, like something that you could describe to any blockbuster stuff – is that people that make them for the most part have some level of connection to both the character they love and the version that ruined their character. And so, so much of comic book movies are resetting from – Less about doing what you love and about resetting a public perception away from what you hate. And so, like, you end up having, like, I don't know if it was the Schumacher movies or Batman 60s or whatever else. But, like, you can see Goyer, who's, like, whether, like, post the Burton movies, comic book movies are kind of leaning more towards camp than seriousness. And so, like, at the same time that he's wanting to make these movies, I I don't know if we... We mentioned the Black Panther movies. He was, uh, or the Black Panther attempt to be made in '96. Uh, he was involved in that as well, and he was really leaning towards this like dark, gritty thing, which can't help but feel of like if you're a comic book fan, like all those comic book books that I read about like the history of them, as well as like documentaries I've seen on anything from Superman to Batman to like DC's history and stuff like that. So much of the bandwidth at some point is taken up to how the 60s Batman or this movie or this, you know, or Superman movies becoming bad or these cheap cartoon series like took away from how important an adult comic books were to these people. And so I still think to this day, so much of comic book movies are based around trying to reset a perception from the audience as opposed to trying to deliver an incarnation that you specifically have a story to tell with. And that's why, like, uh, there still is to this day, it's that it's, again, the 15-year-old version of what it means to be adult means gritty. That is, like, a weird arrested development that, like, the the perception of comic book movies, that, like, fun can't be serious. Um or adult and so we still in the year of our lord 2021 
are like having weird public discourse around how Joker's so good because it's finally taking this material seriously. And it's like, yeah, all versions exist. Like you can have your Frank Miller and you can have your 60s camp and like it doesn't matter. Like the idea that everything needs to be corrected so that your thing is taken seriously by the public. First of all, it never fucking works. Like how many – how many like how much of our dead cinema streets are strewn with the corpses of like gritty Fantastic Four reboots for some reason? Like why? They're always laughable, but like it doesn't it doesn't matter because it's the people that are making the next one that they like someone at some point is gonna decide the Thor movies became too funny twenty years from now and are like this, these were serious characters dealing with gods and stuff like that. And it's like, it doesn't matter all the dead corpses of like laughable, gritty stuff that litters the streets because each individual person has like a personal grindstone they're trying to bring to bear in like finally people people will take me seriously in some ways they're all their own version of comic book villains who are like they'll they laughed at my love and now (laughs) they'll see Uh, oh man Uh, david s goyer is that and like what we'll talk about next week is uh david s goyer was brought in to write uh blade 2 and then guillermo del toro apparently came in and like even to david s goyer's like recollection like for you know to give him credit he was like yeah Guillermo del Toro basically rewrote my script from scratch he took like he took like a few spooky things I liked and then just ran with it and and then he never asked to like have my name taken off the script he was just like yeah you can be my co-writer um because Guillermo del Toro at that point was versed in the studio system and was like uh yeah I can have the cover of having the guy who wrote the last movie still be on the script and then I can get away with whatever I want and David S. Goyer later like he ends up teaming up with a lot of co-writers some of them very bad writers like Zack Snyder (laughs) um and like it's an interesting thing where like uh anytime Zack Snyder is directing a movie that he's not writing I'm like all right let's Let's see. Let's see what he's he's working with here. But anytime that Zach Zach Snyder or David S. Goyer is one of the lead creative voices on a project, you're like, oh, it's yeah. gonna suck. <laughs> From this point on, yeah, uh, yeah. That's the other thing. It's like our our cinema dead. Our, our cinema streets are also strewn with all the dead bodies of collaborators that became creators, <laughs> and all their projects that are like, oh, you needed balance. Yeah, uh, you need <clears throat> someone to tell you no. Uh, the only like. We talked about a lot of this, and I just recognize we're, we're, we're running short on time. The only other thing I wanted to mention was just a funny line that I – this – every – was a, so when I watched Salem's Lot for Spooktober, one of the things I told you I appreciated was how they didn't try to – it was like probably the first vampire movie I'd seen in like, you know, 20 years that wasn't like trying to be like, no, no, no. These aren't your grandfather's vampires. Holy water scares them. Like, they just, like, go with the myth in a way that isn't trying to reinvent or, like, take out the stupid stuff that's not scary. Um, And so one of my favorite lines from this movie is, obviously, this movie does that, as all 90s vampires movies needed to do. But I like that it uh, specifically the line is... um, 
Cross and water don't do dicks, so forget what you've seen in the movies. We use steaks. <laughs> well, I've seen that in movies too. This actually, like, this this leads. Steaks are actually like a, a huge part huge. of the movies. This actually leads directly into one of my complaints about the movie. Um, and then I'm just gonna go into a love fest for my final thoughts. Um, great. So, uh, this movie is two hours. This movie really needs to be an hour and forty minutes. Um, the sequel is actually yeah. shorter. Um, yeah, cut out the mom, and you basically have a five. You, you cut out the mom. You tighten up the la- the ending. You get rid of some of the subplots. You give Nabusha Wright like more action in some of the final sequences. You got it right. The other thing I want you to cut out is <clears throat> um, something you were just talking about, which is. The movie is very self-conscious. The movie doesn't want to give you a big exposition dump, so it gives you three or four of them, and usually those exposition dumps repeat themselves as if the audience has no idea what a vampire is. Um, And it's it's very... That's a vampire movie problem. Because they need to establish the rules. And whereas like with zombie movies, you're like, are these shoot them in the head ones? And you're like, yeah, you shoot them in the head. (laughs) Are these shoot them anywhere ones? Yeah, shoot them anywhere. (laughs) Like that's kind of what zombie movies have to do. And they can do that with like two shots. Vampire movies, they they need to like have a sequence of Blade killing a bunch of people with different tools to get there. Uh, I think they could have done that. Blade kills a lot of fucking vampires in this movie. Um, And I don't, I don't particularly love the fact that like Whistler isn't just given like an awesome monologue, give you all the exposition you need to know about killing vampires. Then he's given another awesome monologue about 10 minutes later explaining Blade's backstory, and then you're done. Whereas, like, this movie has like one of those three or four times, and it really stretches out the length. And it's like they're like trickling out plot details as if you can't keep up. And I don't like that. But the thing about this movie that rules, like, absolutely rules. Is that it is a ferocious movie. So Stephen Norrington directed yeah. this. Stephen Norrington was an SFX guy. Um, he worked with yeah. Rick Baker, Dick Smith, Stan Winston. Um, he's now been exiled to the Phantom Zone for directing League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. He is he is in development hell um, forever. Um, he's in, but he, he hasn't directed a movie since two thousand three, which is really sad. Because have you seen League of Extraordinary it is Gentlemen? Sad. No, I, I recommend checking it out at some point. I have the books and I'm planning to go through them at some point and then I'll probably watch the movie. It is a terrible adaptation. The books are amazing. I love the books. Um, it is a terrible adaptation. Some of the choices it makes and almost almost all the casting choices are really excellent. And it's just like a fun, zippy, like it's better than Van Helsing. Like it's kind of like a fun, zippy kind of uh, adventure movie from that era. If you're nostalgic for that era, if you're nostalgic for the mummies um, and this and Blade, like it's kind of a fun, fun movie for that era. It's yeah. not great. It is like a straight over the line three out of five movie, but there's some great sequences in it. And some of the actors are amazing. The guy who plays the Invisible Man is so good. Um, but uh, I, you assume. I, I assume. <laughs> He told me later he was good. He whispered in my ear. Um, but, like, he – Stephen Norrington does not get enough credit. St- uh, David S. Boyer has gone on to work on some of the biggest movies of all time. Stephen Norrington has not gotten credit as one of the guys. And we're not going to talk about him for the next – the rest of the summer, I don't think. No. Um, we're probably never going to talk about him on the show again because I don't really want to cover League of Extraordinary Gentlemen unless we did, like, an Alan Moore month. And uh, – 
he doesn't get enough credit for modernizing the super superhero genre, making it cool. He was involved in production design. He was doing actually Photoshop to make to, to like nail down Blade's look. Like this is a visual designer through and through who also ended up being a director. Like that is really fucking cool. He deserves immense credit for making superhero movies cool again and making them limber and move. And like my final thoughts on this is that this movie is ferocious. Like Wesley Snipes moves fast. The the fact that he like absolutely takes apart Donna Logue like three or four times and each time it's like funny to you um, is fantastic. The, the ferociousness of the violence, the way they kill Udo Kier and then they have this amazing SFX sequence of Udo Kier, his body peeling apart as opposed to just setting yeah. on fire. That takes a visual stylist. Uh, the killing of Pearl. Oh, Pearl's so good. Pearl is a special effects wonder. Like, I have some feelings about the fact that, like, the movie is basically just, like, it's kind of like a sizest joke. But, like, Pearl is supposed to be a monster, so it's a little, it's you know, it's no worse than, like... But, yeah, it felt, I, I mean, there's a glimpse of her in the preview, and I was like, wait, what is this? Like, I was a big Dune fan. It feels like something out of the Dune. It's box. very dune It's very, uh, Pearl is very Harkonnen. It feels like uh, she was a Harkonnen who got bit by a vampire. Pearl is a great SFX sequence that like Stephen Norrington helped pull off. Like there were like three or four guys in that Pearl costume and they had TVs under there and air conditioners and shit. Like that's amazing. Um, And the ferociousness, the violence of the way they kill Pearl where she's just melting and screaming. And like that is Stephen Norrington being like, we need to, we need to bring this comic book concept into the modern age without trepidation, without, without a lack of courage. And like, to coincide with that and you know the techno awesome battle sequences in the end of the movie where blade is essentially like super powered on blood and fucking with all the bad guys oh yeah to to, to coincide with that there's these dreamier sequences like karen uh watching the sky through the back window of the car as after she's been bitten as being abducted and that scene where udo kier is being killed oh yeah where they're driving on the bridge it's it's so beautiful and slow and dreamy and and uh, he captures uh, a sunset there, and then he captures a sunset later in that scene with Odo Kier's death. And like, yeah. he's he's like, it feels like a fucking nuclear blast has gone. Yes, and it's 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 dreamy and wonderful. And like, there's these slow sequences of Stephen Dorff and his uh, girlfriend kissing, um, very like romantically. And like, who in the middle of this movie makes this like? sexy uh very very tony scott and the hunger style you know sexy vampires making out style sequence and like steven norrington knew he needed to add like a textual touch to it and like yes it makes the movie more more sexual but and more mature but like it also adds like textual virtuosity to it and like yes i've got some problems with the third act and i've got some problems with like you know um some of the superhero bullshit that David Goyer is probably directly responsible for. But like, this is a movie I love because like, this is a movie that like decided that comic books were worth taking seriously. And like, despite the fact that I'm not like hugely into the Marvel movies and I like, I like some of them, but like, I'm not hugely into the Marvel movies. I love that comic books now are being taken seriously because it's that market just like blossoms. And now like I get to like buy these gorgeous, like Hellboy hardcover books because like the market is there for that. Um, And and so like, that's kind of my final thought is like, 
Stephen Norrington is the unsung hero here. David S. Goyer got to go on and become the hero. Wesley Snipes, um, you know, is still kind of pushing to be in, you know, these Marvel movies. But, like, you know, I, I don't know what's going on behind the scenes. But, like, they won't let him be in there. And I love that this, these movies, um, this movie in particular, um, brought us where we are today. And I hope that there's still space in Hollywood for Stephen Norrington and Wesley Snipes going forward. Yeah, I echo all that i loved revisiting this movie again it was one of my favorites understandably like this this came out when i was 15 i saw it in theaters like i still remember my friend nathan vuitton and mark edgerly and all of us talking about how much this movie was how good it was and one of the first movies i bought on vhs and dvd that i could right like and i hid it a little bit from my parents because i still lived at home and uh who knew what they would thought but to kind of build on what you said peter i actually think like One thing that really struck me about this movie, watching in 2021, is that I actually think this movie couldn't get made today still. And I mean that in a – normally when you say that movie couldn't uh, get made today, it's because it's like, you know, homophobic or transgressive in like some damaging way. I actually think this movie, like just from a – it's almost – like – there's things that the 2020s do better when it comes to uh, marginalized actors and people of color and a lot of other things. And there's things that the 90s weirdly do better, even though they do worse in a lot of other ways. Because, like, yeah, they the, the fourth – basically the fourth Marvel movie – start a black actor how much throughout all this marvel stuff did we have to go like how much pressure was there like are you gonna do one with a woman or a person of color and people did cheer that black panther came out 12 years or 11 years after like marvel starts it's like they finally have a person of color leading one of their movies well like the fourth marvel movie had a person of color and there wasn't a lot of stuff about like you know it, like it, it was just Wesley Snipes was Blade. It wasn't a, uh, it, it wasn't a weird controversy that they were like pr- picking. Like, oh, you're going with this. Like, it actually was a weird era where like black superheroes were fine. Like, Shaq was, you know, playing fucking one of the Supermans, I guess, in in Steel, a movie I've never seen. Uh, but, I, like, I saw Steel uh, when I was like, whenever it came out, like eight, and I remember being like, that's so cool, Shaq is in a superhero movie, and I liked it, which calls into yeah. question the fact that, like, I hated the Avengers and shit <laughs> when I was eight. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, like, it, it, and then, so, um, you know, his his lead is a woman of color as well, who previously broke off a relationship with a white man, like, which isn't, like, commented on or played for anything big obviously there was no controversy at the time and then beyond that i think like like beyond that part of it like i do think that as much as like i actually really like the deadpool movies the second one especially but for all of its like things about we're doing hard r and we're gonna do like a finally an r-rated superhero like i don't think that deadpool or logan would have the courage to bathe every character drenched in blood within the first 10 minutes of the movie and then never stop the level of horrific violence that occurs like it is weird how much more and i don't want to blame it all on 9-11 or whatever happened how much more even like our mainstream edgy r-rated gore fests are stripped down compared to what was okay and fine in 1998 um 
and uh, and usually looking grosser too because they use more squibs than CGI. <laughs> like you know, there there it was it was gl- grosser to look at and more explicit. So like it it it's. It's kind of amazing looking back on this and having lived through the last 20 years of, of comic book movie representation and the shy away from anything approaching R-rated violence, especially in what could be a PG-13 or a superhero movie or stuff like that. And then kind of the reintroduction of that in the last few years and just recognizing how ahead of its time this movie is to a point that to some degrees we haven't caught all the way back up with. And – um yeah, it's it's it, it's a it for for that reason alone it holds up really well. This isn't one most of the time, Peter, when we're doing these genre movies and we go back and we go, man, yeah, I mean this was good, but we gotta talk about all these things where uh, you know, like you know, uh, way too many people are using the N word with Blade, right? Like or something like that. They're like, you know, was, I guess it was socially acceptable at the time, but it's terrible. This movie feels like i said progressive for 2021 in a way that actually bums me out a little bit uh not take away from the quality of the movie but there's nothing in here that makes me go yeah you know it was 1998 we've come a long way if anything it's like hey can we catch back up to blade and then go further yeah because we're not we're not quite there yet yeah <laughs> I, I am I am with you and I'm 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 just very hopeful that all the next Blade stuff um it goes beyond Black Panther, goes beyond this movie, and like the fact that this movie was written by a white guy, directed by a white guy, um it just shows you how like the political goalposts get moved. Basic just respect for people of color. Um, gets uh, gets buried in, in a lot of the script writing process because they're afraid that it's going to piss off a certain portion of the population. And, like, I, I, I it, it bothers me because I want movies to, like, yeah. plant their flag firmly on the side of what's good and what's right. It's a movie that holds up as, like, a horror action movie and also holds up as, like, what a... Uh, what a movie featuring a person of color superhero can be. Uh, and that th- that's kind of amazing that it's able to do both. Um, next week, we're going to see if Peter is able to maintain direction for longer than two hours when we talk about uh, Blade uh, 2. Uh, and then we'll probably reference Blade as well, but... Um, most of our conversation will be on Blade Two. Wait, we're hold on, we're is, we're uh, we're talking about the movie Blade Two. You said we're talking about Blade Two. We're going to talk about Blade Two and that it's important to compare and contrast. But most of the conversation will be focused on Blade Two. It's been like two hours. I feel like we probably knocked out a lot of what we needed to say about Blade. I feel like we talked about the movie Blade Two. Yeah. So like, we'll probably be like, okay, so like compared to like here in Blade Two. You know, it looks different than it did, but some things are similar to Blade 2. Can we just talk about the movie Blade 2? Yeah, we'll talk about Blade 2, but it's important to know when things have, you know, evolved from Blade 2. Yeah, I mean, I know they evolved from Blade 2. I I really just want to talk about the film known as Blade 2. I do too. And as well. <laughs> uh, but yeah, what are we doing after Blade 2? It's, it's really going to be hard to guess for people, I think. Uh... Zach Zantucci is our guest, someone who has listened to this podcast and emailed us, I guess, 
Like, someone who we've known essentially for like six, seven years, somehow we've never asked him to be on this this podcast as we've always been very friendly with him through the the film circles, i.e. our Facebook group and a former website that we post in. Talk about Blade as well, but mostly Blade 2. Then, uh, then we're going into some Hellboy stuff. We're doing Hellboy, the animated movies, uh, a quick like not a quick, but we're going to talk about all the comic books that Peter and I have read as well. Uh, both Hellboy, BRPT, um, or BPRD, BPRD. I always get that acronym a little off. Uh, uh, and uh, Abe Sapien and all the assorted characters of the Hellboy universe. And then we're going to move into Hellboy, Blade Trinity, Hellboy 2, Blade Anime, Hellboy 2019, Blade Boy, Hellblade. Senua's Sacrifice. And we'll wrap it up with Hellblade colon Senua's Sacrifice 2 coming to PS5 in November of this year. Thank you, Aaron, for laying out the rest of our summer. Um, Aaron, uh, just a real quick question. If you could become a vampire and you'd be on the vampire board right away, would you become a vampire? Yeah. Me too. 100%. Yeah. I don't want that. Yeah. Night. Good night. Revolutionist, executionist, flip a triple six, into three knives, call the crucifix, each man holding, no man falling, coast clear and premieres in the green tank rolling, prepare, get on your post and stand clear, they wanting to shut us down with the whole team here, what, you act like a sweet or something, this ain't no desert storm bullshit, Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand. And you want to support the show. Show, we truly absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, we really do appreciate you uh, with kisses and smooches, Peter and Aaron. <laughs>